everybody thought I had a lot of money and I really didn't. Like I, I, I mean, yeah, the shares were worth a lot of money and you know, we had all these press releases going out, you know, like Car Advice raised money at $20 million valuation. It's like, you know, and, you know, and Alba was fellow as the biggest shareholder. It's like, yeah, but I can't sell those shares. Like they, you know, like there's no value there. I couldn't even get a bank loan. Welcome to Yaro's podcast, where you'll discover the stories behind world-class performers, business builders, and enlightened leaders. Hey, this is Yarrow, and welcome to a podcast interview. Let's call it a part two, a very uh, overdue, but I think the timing is fantastic to record this interview because my guest has just exited, or in the last uh, year or so, exited finally from a startup, a blog, essentially, that he launched. And uh, I was friends with him when he first got started with it, so I saw it from the very beginning in the genesis. And uh, he's also about to leave the company, so it's a real full circle. And it's probably, I could honestly say, the most successful blog story I know of, certainly from Australia, certainly as a person in my friendship circle. You may have guessed who he is because we've had him on the show before. So I'd like to welcome Albors Fala back onto the podcast. Hello, Albors. Hey, Yarrow. How are you, man? It's been a long time. Yeah, it has. And uh, I think it's safe to say your podcast is one of the more popular ones from back in the day. I mean, just the title, The Million Dollar Car Blogger, is captivating. I think we actually triggered a few copycats who went on to do their own car blogs and succeeded as well as I, a result. I know. We, there was a guy from, actually the website Car Throttle started. And the guy messaged me and said, I, I just wanted to let you know I started Car Throttle after I heard your podcast with Yarrow. And I was like, great, I started the freaking competitor. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. Um, Did you know he recently website, exited? That, I know, he recently <laughs> exited as well. And I was like, God damn it. But hey, I'm, I'm glad because that's what the whole point of this thing is, is to inspire people uh, to do stuff. So. Yeah, and I've actually uh, got in touch with that. And he's coming on a podcast uh, in the future. So we'll oh, hear. Tell him I said hi. <laughs> for sure. We'll hear his million dollar car vlog story, hopefully, as well. But you're the original, at least as, as far as I know, Al. So um, thank but, God. For those listening, though, who may never have heard of you, it was a long time ago. They probably haven't heard your first interview we did. I'll link to that, obviously, with the show notes. So we're not going to repeat the Genesis origin story of your business, caradvice.com or caradvice.com.au when you first got started. That's a story we can sort of summarize. You you started a car blog when we were both at UQ. Maybe you want to give us just a quick uh, summary of that, that early days, the very, very early days. Yeah, man. Like, I mean, very, very early days. Website started in 2006 while we were at UQ. I think actually, yeah, we were working together at UQ at the time in Brisbane, Australia, I should say, for those that don't know. It sort of immediately... That immediately took off, but it, it sort of immediately had a lot of positive signs. Within six months, I quit my job, raised some money, and sort of went at it full time. And to cut a long story short, in 2016, we sold it on a two-year earnout, and in end of 2018, uh, the earnout finished. So, yeah, it's absolutely been a crazy whirlwind journey, but it's been a fantastic one and a, and a really, really fun and exciting one for me and everybody else that was involved. Now, when you say earnout, that means you basically sold the company. Just do you just want to give the the numbers and, and who bought it and just just a summary of that, the end point as well? Yeah. So the original sale figure that was reported was for thirty five mil for Car Advice. That was in two thousand sixteen. That was what we thought we had sold it for because we figured that because that's they paid us the first half of the business at a thirty five mil valuation, 
And the second half, we thought, oh, well, we can get the rest of it at the same valuation, we'd be delighted. Except we did ridiculously better. <laughs> I think the, the second half was valued close to 100. And so, therefore, the total valuation for the business was over 60 mil. I think it was about 68 or 62.8. I can't remember, but it was over 60 mil. So, yeah, the, the whole thing, the total enterprise value of it by the time it was sold was over $60 million. So, it was a pretty good outcome. Not one that I expected when I first signed the deal in 2016 because I would have, honest to God, just taken the whole thing at a 35 mil valuation if they'd let me, but they didn't. They actually made it so that the rest of my shares were worth zero at the time, and I had to work to make them worth something. And my God, did we work to make them worth something, but we didn't know. like They could have been worth nothing. And, and who'd you sell to? Channel 9 in Australia, or 9 Entertainment Company, which is now the biggest media organization in Australia. They recently also bought Fairfax. So yeah, it was a, it's, a, it's a you know billion-dollar media company. And it's safe to say you walked away a very wealthy man after all this. And uh, probably safe to say way back in 2006, you never saw this outcome coming or, or did you? Were you, were you uh, that No, confident? man, I, I, it would be a complete utter crap if I told you I did. I, I never, um, you, you knew me back then. I was just happy to go to lunch and have some money to eat something. I mean, I did this because I love cars. And, you know, I, I know it sounds cliche, but I never really felt like it was work because I, I just loved doing stuff with cars and the writing about cars and doing videos on cars. And, uh, you know, I was excited just by the the thought of continuously doing that. And that's sort of what drove me. And obviously, we had a lot of help along the way from some really great people, whether the early staff or, the, you know, some good CEOs towards the end and things like that. But, yeah, I mean, ultimately, everybody always associates car advice with me and not with as much with as other people. But it was very much a team effort. Yeah. Um, but we all, like everyone... Every single person, including you, Yara, that ever invested in car advice made money. So um, it was a, it's a good outcome. Yeah, I should disclose that I was also an early, well, I think the last branch of private you should have investing. Been a lot, you should have been a lot earlier. <laughs> I should have been, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thankfully got in there at some point. So I have to thank you for that too, Alvarez. I guess I haven't had a chance to say that in person. So, you know, I appreciate the, uh, the, the... You should buy a car with the earnings. Something. I, don't, I don't know what, I don't know. You probably you, don't buy an electric car. You know I'm going to buy a Tesla if I do that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that makes me feel sick that that money has gone to a Tesla. No, I haven't yet. I'm, I'm actually still in... Uh, the, the car sharing world. I can't bring myself to buy a car, so I have too many other modes of transport available to me. It uh, probably makes you feel sick too, but you know. It's just, it does, <laughs> it does. I, have, I haven't caught public transport for about 15 years. So uh, I, I, I do every day, or I, I just share bikes <laughs> and share scooters and use Uber uh, and you know, all that sort yeah, of stuff. No, I, use, I use Uber, I suppose. These days, that's regarded as, as transport, isn't it? It is, yeah. Car to go, big fan of that. And Turo as well, which I think is a, a you know the Airbnb for cars. I think that's a pretty cool new business as well, fairly new business. Anyway, I'd actually be curious to know what you think of all these new developing transportation, whether they're going to you know, eliminate cars. But I want to stick to your story for the time being. If we can talk about the future <laughs> at the end of the interview. So at the conclusion of our last podcast interview, if I remember right, you told us, I remember you told the story of how you were the one-man show, as you just mentioned before. You were writing the articles. You just love cars. Then I remember you met Anthony Crawford, who kind of was the catalyst to say, let's make this a serious business. Let's, you know, I'll invest and we'll bring on, I don't know if you got a, a board directors, but you certainly were looking to put more people in place at that time around that sort of, I won't call it traditional journalist model, but maybe the new online media model for, for covering content, in this case, cars. And then I remember the real big change was when you guys had that trip 
over to the States, not the States, to Europe, sorry, to uh, drive the Bugatti Veyron and a bunch of other supercars or hypercars. I don't know what they call them nowadays. And that was what cemented your criteria and your, your status, I guess, as a an actual significant source of in, uh, media content, you know, like a real, I won't say magazine or newspaper, but a, a real journalist for getting real cars and because you were struggling before that and i think that's around the time we cut off the interview you're already doing several million dollars maybe a million dollars at least in revenue from advertising and you had a small team and then i think you were also possibly your ceo at the time was um realestate.com.au the ceo or your investor yeah, the chairman was chairman. our chairman at the time yeah look that, that was i think 2008 2009 when we must have done that that would have been a uh, quite some time ago now yes that's literally 10 years ago yes. so obviously <laughs> you're right so the first person that joined was anthony crawford who i would regard as a co-founder even though he came in about a year after the business started and um he wasn't an investor he just um i think he actually made me believe that this thing probably would be something even though the site was growing and i mean i had adsense on it so that was but the extent of my ambitions <laughs> in some ways, you know, we, just, we were just running AdSense on it. And, you know, was, I don't know if you remember, but I quit when AdSense started making me more money than my full-time job. And I thought, oh, yeah. that's, that's interesting. You know, I was like, oh, well, I guess I don't need to work full-time anymore. And, I, you know, I, I don't know, although it was the 17th business I started, I was very good at failing at businesses because I never really understood how to commercialize them or how to monetize them. So I think having Anthony on board, he didn't really know how to commercialize and monetize them either, but he believed in the bigger picture and he helped me see it and helped me believe it. And then once I believed it, then there was no one really stopping it. So then we just sort of grew the audience as fast as we could. I mean, after that interview, obviously, we went through the tailwind of the GFC, which hit Australia after it hit the rest of the world, sort of in 2019, which is a really, really difficult time for the business. When, you know, we were... 2009, stage, you mean, not 2009. 2009, sorry. Yeah. 2009, <laughs> yeah. So we were, um, at one stage, we were days away from insolvency or shutting down because we couldn't afford to pay staff. And, you know, we raised money at some horrendous valuations and made a lot of people an absolute killing. That's when I should have bought in. <laughs> That's when you should have bought in. Yeah. Um, but you were going but, down, you know. <laughs> hey? You were going down. I then, know. Yeah. Well, well that's, that's why it's called a risky investment. Yeah, yeah. So, true, um, true. It and is. You, I'm sure plenty of people invested in things that actually failed as well. So yeah. you got to... Yeah. So that was 2009. 2010, we sort of really started to put it all together, you know, harder a CEO that took us from making, I think, six, seven hundred grand a year to 2.5 in one 12-month period with nothing changing except someone actually focusing on monetization. And then we went from 2.5 to 4 point something. And then it sort of just continued to grow from there. And I mean, let, we're let now me, doing... Let me ask you that before we... Because that's obviously uh, opens up a lot of questions. So I know you were the content man to begin with. And Anthony comes on, and I know he's a supercar fan as well. So he was producing content to cover cars. And then you guys became legit. You started hiring more writers. And I'm assuming more writers equals more content, equaled more traffic, which equaled more advertising dollars. And then, as you just mentioned, when you brought on the CEO, you and this is what I do remember when we, we spoke. I remember you said this. You said, we hired an advertising salesperson who's earning like half a million dollars a year now in commissions or something like that. And that's like because he's made so much more money for us because he's a specialist at selling ads to car companies. And that was like a something you were blown away by compared to the early days of Google AdSense and, and, and maybe doing it, you know, with a outer professional sales team. Do you remember 
that. Yeah, I mean, we we signed probably the worst bloody deal of all time, where we said, you know, here's your base salary, which is pretty high. I think it was about at somewhere in the two hundreds or just below it or something like that, which probably wasn't that high for a CEO, but it was pretty high for a small startup to be handing out because I was earning, I think maybe at the time, fifty grand a year at best, right, sixty grand a year at best. So we were paying our CEO at the base salary a significantly more amount of money than both Anthony and I were earning together. And then, you know, as part of his deal, we put in a clause to incentivize him, and that was you get 10% of all the money earned. Not the profit, but all the money oh, earned. Wow. So, yeah. So, because you got to remember, at the time, we were doing, you know, 600 grand a year or something thereabouts. So, we thought, oh, well, if you get it to a mil, he'll make another 100, and that's great for everybody, right? Mm. He just managed to get it to 2.4, and then he managed to get it to 4 point something. And I thought, oh, crap. How? How, how did he do that? <laughs> Because honestly, we just we had the audience. We always had the audience, and our audience grew. How come? We started at a time where demand for what we do was extraordinary. Like there was no online automotive player in Australia that was doing what we were doing. There was no one focused on great imagery, great photos, great videos, content that was written in a fun manner, not written for other journalists. Like we we really went for that consumer friendly angle, and we had a lot of fun. I think if we had also at the same time exploited all the stuff that we did on social media, we would have had an enormous personal following, at, but we didn't. Like We just focused so hard on the website and the actual like SEO and all the business side of it. And that worked amazingly, and I don't have any regrets about it. But one of the reasons I think we were so popular and sort of really grew in the car community and the car enthusiast space was because we were having a lot of fun. And it was pretty obvious for anyone that was reading it. Like We were just driving supercars. We were driving every car. The stories were great. The culture was great. There was a lot of great energy around it. And it just, we grew for the first, I think, 11 and a half years. Every single month was better than the month of the prior year. Like for 11 and a half years, we never actually went down in traffic. Every time, every month, year on year, we grew. Every year, year on year, we grew. It was absolutely incredible. I can't imagine you were, I remember you really loved the stats of your website. So if I asked you to kind of look back, I know it's 11 years, it's a long time, but do well, you, 13 years actually. 13, okay, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've known each other for that long too now. But do you remember looking at your stats? Like, do you feel like, okay, we know if we write twice as many articles each month, we double our traffic and it's coming, you know, mostly from Google search results? Like, do, could you see correlation? Because I know I had a blog at the same time, but I eventually hit a plateau. Now, unlike you guys, I didn't, you know, build a journalist team and, and go out and cover everything I could in my niche. I went down the sort of personal brand area. It's very different for automotive because we don't have to look for the content. The content comes to us. Okay. And, you know, there's roughly 300 new model year releases of cars in Australia. So if you sort of think about that, that's a guaranteed 300 reviews. Actually, it's probably more because each car has multiple variants. Then you've got all the news and you've got all the industry stuff. It, it's like this. We actually can't keep up. Like we've got, I think at the moment, we've got 50 people full-time at least at Car Advice across you know Brisbane, Sydney, and Melbourne. And we could do so much more content still. Obviously, obviously, all those people don't do content, but it's never been a case where, oh, we don't know what to write about. It's always been mm. a case where we don't have time to cover that. That's still the case today. We just don't have time to cover everything. So but the industry you- obviously dictates that. So I think maybe for some people that are in a category whereby the the information flow isn't as high or that the commercialization of that in, mm. of that information flow isn't as high because cars are huge. They're trillion-dollar business so in the world. So there's a, there's a lot of effort being put into them and a lot of car companies put a lot of effort into getting into media. So they kind of do a lot of the work for us in some ways. Right. That was going to lead me to a question because it sounds like 
you could just keep adding more writers and more content producers if you wanted to, because there's more to cover. But that obviously means you have more salaries to pay. Now, I think most people, in no matter what subject, would say, you know what, I've got more topics to cover than I could possibly cover, but I don't have cash to pay more people to write. You guys seem to manage that. You, your team was, I remember it was like you were six people, eight people, 10 people, 20 people. And a lot of those people were content producers. So is it, do you think, purely because you can monetize your content at a higher return just because of your niche that made that work? Oh, absolutely. There is no doubt in my mind because automotive is a, it's, I think it's the second biggest advertising category on the internet. What's one? I think it's either finance. I think it's finance. So I think, sorry, I should say on the internet, I should say in Australia. I don't know about the global stats, but in Australia, automotive is either one or two. Sometimes it's two, sometimes it's one. It's huge. Like you'll go on any site and you will see ads for cars. It doesn't matter if it's a car site or not. What we offered was a very safe, environment where people that were there were looking for car content. And I can tell you, and I always use this example, if you would remember, no one ever Googles a Kia for fun. Like no one is Googling a Kia Rio or a Kia Cerato because they're bored at home on Google and going, oh, I wonder what, you know, what that car's like. They're only doing it because they're looking to buy the car. So when they Google the car and they find us and they're reading it, that environment that we provide is very advertiser friendly. Now that doesn't mean we're going to write nice things about cars. We never have. If the car is shit, the car is shit. And I know you told me not to swear, but sometimes <laughs> I have to. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah, but um, if, you know, if the car is not great, we're going to tell you the car is not great. However, the, so, it's so you could have just said that. <laughs> I, I could have. I could have. But that's not me. Yeah. You know how hard it's been not to swear up until this point. <laughs> okay. The environment was as such that if we had a review of a you know car of, of like say a, a Hyundai, and it wasn't great then obviously Hyundai wouldn't want their ads around it, which is totally fine because Toyota would or Ford would or somebody else would. And we had this really good competitive marketplace where we have always been oversold. Like our inventory has always been our biggest issue. We do not have enough page impressions for ads. And it's been a, it's actually been, that's been my biggest business challenge with car advice is that we've never had enough page impressions because we have always, it's like a flight that's full. We always oversell and then try to work out a way to deliver it. And usually we don't and do make good or whatever. And we just sort of this consistent issue of not being able to deliver what we sold because we just didn't have enough impressions. So we just, like you said, if we just kept writing more content, it would work. But it's not as easy. I know it sounds logical. You just keep adding more journalists. But Mm. as you would know, the more staff you add, the less productive they become. I know it sounds really strange, but because of the way the structure of how it all works, like when we were doing, so I'll give you a good example. When we had eight journalists, and now that we have, I think, 15 or 16, our content has not doubled. It might have increased by 20 to 25%. And the reason for that is because there's just more complexity. We tend to do different types of content that requires more people. So we'll do like a 10-car comparison, which would be impossible to do with, you know, with a small team, but is now very possible with a bigger team. Mm-hmm. And that content, it's like a pillar article, right? Like you know, the stuff they used to talk about mm-hmm. back in the day. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a piece of content that is valid and very helpful for a 12-month period where those cars are very much new and in like you know best small car for example as, as a comparison and that becomes an article that'll just get hits for a very very long time but you could make the argument that if you did the time that went into that which is probably two weeks to get it all do all the photography video and all that you could write 100 articles by those 10 people and that would probably get more page impressions really it probably would over over that period of time but we're trying to do something that's right for the consumer as well so we have to always keep that in mind we always had an audience first approach and we always did it from an audience perspective. We never did it from a monetary perspective. And I think in some ways that hurt us, but it also means I sleep better at night. Mm-hmm. 
Tell me more about the other roles in the company. So I think everyone understands the, the correlation between, you know, I run a blog, I r- hire more writers, we produce more content, and that that's the engine that drives the business. But most bloggers never get a CEO, never have a corporate structure. So could you maybe take us through even your own experience of that? Because you were a one-man show, then a partner, but your partner was a content creator. How did you transition? Because I know one of the reasons why I would never have followed in your footsteps, A, I didn't have the topic with the commercialization potential. Maybe I did, who knows? But I could never have had a boss or a CEO mm. or other people telling me what to do or a salary or set hours, all these kind of things. So how did you adapt to that as the company grew? Yeah, so it's a very good question. And, and I kind of agree with you because my personality is quite similar to yours in that sense, in that I don't cope well with structure or cope well with you know, rules in place or things like that. However, we never really had that, man. Like, Obviously, we grew pretty rapidly. We raised some money. We hired a CEO. We were fortunate in many ways that the CEOs we hired sort of understood our role. I mean, one, because we had majority control of the company, so it's not like they were going to fire us. But two, they sort of really looked at me, okay, these guys know how to make content. They're really good in the industry. They're great ambassadors. You know, they're helping us get money through the door. They just they just don't know how to close the deals. They don't know how to, like, make it happen afterwards. So the other roles we had, you know, we had obviously a CEO. We had a head of sales. We had all the ad, ad operations guys, like people that actually had to put the ads up there and generate the traffic reports and make sure it was all working and all sorts. That's stuff that I just, I could do, but I didn't want to. You know, it's just not me. That's not where I was good at for the business. And, you know, we had a lot of salespeople. We had marketing people. We had, you know, publishing support people. We, I mean, we've got 50 people now. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, to be honest, if you told me what they all do, I probably couldn't tell you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I probably couldn't tell you. And that sounds bad, but it's, well, it's that's just true. Yeah, that's what you expect. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, it gets some, um, as it gets bigger, people have very specific roles that in the past, you could have said, you know, we had one person that did three of those, and now we have three people to do all those. So, mm. you know, things grow and, you know, businesses expand and, and, and stuff like that. But up until extremely recently, where we did become 100% owned by a media company, the culture was still very good. Like, we still we still did it because we all love cars. No one, including Anthony and I, ever did this for money. Like, it was never a case of, oh, we're going to grow this thing and sell it. That was just a bonus. I think it's probably worth mentioning that we were very well down the path of listing the business. We even had our stock code. We were days away, 10 days maybe away from actually listing the business. So that was our plan. listing on the stock exchange, doing an IPO. Exactly, yes. We had done a pre-IPO round. We had the investment bank. We we, we spent, I don't know how much, must have been hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this business to be IPO compliant and get ready to listen to the Australian Stock Exchange. So we went down that path, man. It just happened to be that, I mean, I can tell you that story now, I suppose. I want to make sure we don't miss because that's, you have to make that choice for a reason. And that's that's the point where you're you're thinking we have a an established business and the next obvious step is we need more funding. So we either IPO or, or sell to something, someone bigger. I feel like we're filling out a lot of the pieces. So you know, your team got bigger, a lot of the more structured roles were, were in place, the CEO, the, the salespeople. I'm assuming you had a more robust tech team. You had HR, you know, all this. I, I, I completely forgot about tech, yes. We, <laughs> at, the, at, the, at the beginning, all the tech was me, which, which was fantastic because I, I used to make edits on the live site. So if I missed the semicolon, the whole thing would collapse. <laughs> <laughs> and that was fun because, you know, I have, a, um, I have a tech background, but it was pretty evident to me that, you know, when, when we had real... It's like, you know what, it was a bit of a waking up moment because when we went from making like, you know, 20 grand a month to making 100 grand a month, say, as an example, and I would make a change and the site would go down for two hours, that had a real material impact. 
because we would not be delivering ads for an hour. And that would actually, I could actually see that costing me personally money. And I thought, oh crap, like I had never thought about it that way. Like it, it never sort of made me go, right, if I screw this up, it has a real genuine measurable financial impact. So we had to go, okay, well, clearly I'm not the right guy to run the tech here. Like I've got it to a point where as an MVP, basically. So then hiring a proper tech team and getting it to actually be a legitimate business with tech work going on all the time. That that was actually a huge deal for us. You know, to be, people won't believe this, but we still run WordPress. <laughs> we we, we are great. still it's fantastic. I mean, the front end is extremely um, unique, and it, it's using the WordPress database obviously to pull the data, but it's very much a unique, custom, unique thing. Custom, customized, very, very. I mean, we have eight full time tech people, so if you can imagine that for a WordPress site, you'll understand how customized it is. But at its core, when I go and write an article. I'm doing the same thing as everybody else running WordPress. I've got the exact same backend interface, the exact same design and look and feel. So actually, I've probably got an older version because we don't update as often because it takes a huge amount of effort to update WordPress for us because of all the customizations. So look, you know, people go, oh, it's a barrier to entry. Dudes, we, we literally started on WordPress. I made the first theme myself. Like it was just red. Um, it, was, it was pretty. It was yeah. pretty ugly. I, I remember talking to you when The Verge had first come out, and I said, "Hey, this, this design I think is really cool." And then, not too long after that, I saw features popping up that look very similar. And I was like, "This is cool that you can roll that out, you know, so quickly." Dude, we we had um we had shirts made for the tech team that had a pick the logo of The Verge, and it said, "What would The Verge do?" Because every time <laughs> they asked me, like seriously, every time they asked me, um. What do you want this to look like? I'd go. What would the Verge do? And we'd go and look at it and go, Oh, we really like that. And then we'd go, How would that apply to cars? And how? Because okay. I, I still to this day, think that original Verge website design was one of the best publishing designs I've ever seen. And they've changed it now. It doesn't look nearly as good. Right, it's right. very different now. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. It was a huge inspiration for us. And you know, the Verge obviously does extremely well globally. Right. Right. Okay. So there's a few other things I want to talk about before we talk IPO and exit. I remember. There was quite a few initiatives you guys took to kind of take the business in bigger directions. You you had potential TV tie-ins. There was a whole platform for integrating with, I think it was car, maybe the distribution or the the retailers. Or yeah, like, yeah. Tell yeah. me some of the the side. I don't want to call them side projects, but the. Uh, the expansion projects you guys had. I know some worked, some didn't. Like the podcast, I think, worked really well, but the marketplace, not so much. Could you talk us through them and why you yeah. did them? The problem we had, and I think it's important to sort of understand the preface to it, the problem we had was media publisher is not sexy. Like from an investment point of view, from a takeover point of view, from a business point of view, if you're just a blog that publishes content, people go, oh, yeah, like that's great, but you know, that doesn't sound interesting. You know, they want to hear about transactional models. They want to hear about how it'll scale and all that sort of stuff. Mm. You know how it is. So, SAS. Yeah. You know, we decided initially, okay, let's let's take on our competitor in the classified business, which was car sales. So we actually went and bought a an automotive classified business called Car Buddy, which was an absolute disaster. And it, I think it lasted about six months. However, you know, it's funny because that allowed us to raise money. So we went to market saying, hey, we've, we've bought this classified business and we're now going to try our best into taking on car sales. All, all of a sudden, our valuation went through the roof. Um, mm. And we raised money, I think, at that point at a 18 mil valuation or something like that. Whereby, I think, had we tried to do it without that, it would have not been anywhere near that. Even though that classified business made no, made no money and really, in my opinion, was never going to work long term. Why not? We gave it a go. Because it's like taking on Google, like it's like taking on eBay. You know, we, we, Cardwise, the reason Cardwise was successful is because we were singular focused on content. 
we knew what we did well and we knew we did it better than anybody else. And so did the car companies. So we, you know, I think someone told me this a year ago, we are the most expensive website to advertise on in Australia. Oh, wow. Yeah. And the reason that is, is because our, the way we've sort of captivate that audience and the way we sort of present information, the way it sort of all works and the data that we gather and all that, there's an enormous amount of value, you know, like a, a standard car company, I think, let's take Volkswagen as an example. I think I worked it out that their average marketing cost per car is close to $1,000. So for every car they sell, they can spend a thousand bucks to market it. And so they sell a lot of cars and therefore the amount of money that they can spend to help sell those cars is astronomical. And, you know, we don't capture much of that. Most of that goes to Google and Facebook. But that small amount of pie for which we compete for is very lucrative. And we can ask for high premiums because the products that we help facilitate a sale for have very good margins in them. So it, there, there is a, it is a great industry to be in from a commercialization perspective. It just happens to be that we all love cars. So it's like a bit of a marriage of convenience in that sense that we happen to love cars and cars happen to be very lucrative. And, yeah, it just works. Mm. But I can see the appeal. Like if I had a site with as much audience as yours, of course I'm thinking, let's add classifies, let's sell insurance, let's you know do affiliate marketing, let's come up with some sort of a subscription model or something we can sell to our audience. All of these different things. Did and and it sounds like you did a few of those, right? Well, we pretty much did all of those. Actually, we did do all of those. And I mean, apart from insurance, which obviously we we have, we do have an insurance partner now, and it's a very lucrative deal. The rest of it, I mean, we tried it. P- people don't want to pay for content online. I, I-, I don't want to pay for content. I-, I shouldn't say that. I don't want to pay for content online, so I don't believe that anybody else should have to either. A, a lot of people go, oh, you know, you guys have got advertising around here and that makes it look like you're getting paid to write this. And that's never been the case. Obviously, there's an indirect support from car companies for, for our existence, but it's never a direct support of I'll pay you, you write this. That doesn't work like that. But they'd go, oh, you know, I'd pay for this. I would pay a subscription and if you guys didn't have advertising, and it, it, it wouldn't work. Like, there's no way we would make $20 million a year of people paying us money. That would require everybody in Australia to pay us a dollar a year. Mm. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Like, it's just, that's, it's a fantasy model. But you so tried it. We didn't actually go down the path of trying it. We, we trialed it and we definitely developed it, but we never actually put it live. Yeah, we had like Car Advice Black, which is what we called it, which was supposed to be like a premium offering of content that would be a subscription-based model or something like that. It just, all our market research of our audience just went, yeah, no, they don't want this. Like, they, they want the content, they just don't want to have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. What was the car purchasing platform? I remember you, you were quite excited about it at one stage. Yeah, so there was a, there was a um, business in America, I can't really remember its name now, where the concept was basically, you come to them and say, hey, I'm looking at buying a you know Tesla Model 3, for example. Actually, no, that's a terrible example. Good example. So I'm here, I'm no, no, because you know why it's a terrible example is because Tesla, Tesla prices don't. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's no negotiation. No, on those it's prices, fixed. Yeah. It's fixed, exactly. So pick any other brand, basically. I'm, I'm looking at buying a Volkswagen Golf, right? And they would come to us and say, I'm looking at buying this Volkswagen Golf. And obviously, we would feed that traffic in via car advice to a website we had called Best Price. And what we would say was, okay, give us a postcode. Here's your postcode. We would go to the closest number of dealers. We would do all the negotiating and we would get them the best price that was possible on that car. And you know what? 99% of the time, it was the best price. And they would never have got that price on their own. And we started really, you know, helping sell some cars. The problem was, and we found that this obviously too late, was that people would go, 
oh, thanks. That, that's a great quote. I'm just going to take that to the dealer that I wanted to and get it from them. Because obviously dealers are always going to match. Mm. They're always going to match. Because they're selling, they're selling a commodity. They're not selling something unique. They're selling something that – they're actually selling the same car. It's literally the same car in the system somewhere that they could get from another dealer. But so they would get the quote from us, take it to the dealer they were going to always buy the car from. And the dealer go, oh, well, I guess I'll match it then. And um, we'll get no attribution. And that was the end of the story. So we were helping – it was something almost like the ACCC should be running. Um, <laughs> so – we were helping consumers buy cars at a very good price, but we just never got any attribution for it. So the business didn't last very long. We moved a lot of cars, but yeah, it made no money. So it wasn't, wasn't ideal. Okay. Uh, what did work? I know the podcast, I remember maybe to connect the dots here, around about this time, or maybe it was just before you tried this uh, car purchasing platform, you brought on Andrew Beecher as your, I guess, the, the CEO that took you to an exit. Is that right around that time? Yeah, yeah, I think he, he was around 2015 from memory or 14, 15. So we had that year or the year prior, I think it was, yeah, so he came on 15. In 2014, we tried to sell the business. So I think it's, it's sort of worth mentioning that we had some, I personally took on some investors in the early days that I very much regretted, you know, some hostile investors that put in minimum amounts of money and made a lot more. And Why they, did you do that? You know, the first investor I ever took on put in 20 grand for 20%. And he, he, he was not a good investment for me. It was not a good investment for the business. And it wasn't even the 20% or the 20 grand that was annoying. It was the, the amount of agitation that was caused throughout this 10-year period by this one investor mm-hmm. who had a reasonably substantial shareholding. And it just, I don't know why. I, I did it because I didn't know any better. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, honestly, like I, I, didn't, I didn't have the business acumen to go, well, hang on, this is a poor valuation, one, and two, what do you bring to the table? It was star power. Wasn't that the kind of, the in your mind, I guess, back then, and might have been thinking this is legit because this is a real serious multimillionaire CEO of a huge company who's coming no, no, aboard? No, that, or? that wasn't Simon Baker from oh, real estate. Okay, company. that wasn't. No, no, no. That, that, that was what I, Roger Coleman I'm, I'm referring to. Okay, um, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm, glad, so, I'm so glad we're name dropping here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's the truth, so I don't, I don't mind saying it. But okay. So Simon Baker, who was the CEO of realestate.com.au, which is a you know multi-billion dollar business, he was our chairman and he was very he was very good. He's not the easiest character in the world, but I personally learned a lot from him and I think the business benefited from having him on board. He kind of steered us in the right direction. But the first investor we ever took on, as I mentioned, the reason I mentioned it is because there was a lot of agitation um, in 2014 that people wanted to see some value realization of their investment. I mean, we're talking about someone who put in 20 grand here, right? But anyway, mm. there was a lot of agitation of, oh, you know, when are, when are we going to do a sale? When are we going to do a listing? When are we going to do whatever? When do I get my money, basically? When do I get my money? When do I see a return on this? And um, so we sort of decided, okay, well, let's see if we can sell this business because it was just getting a bit too much for us. And we went down the process. Of- let, let me just point out one thing too. You personally hadn't made any money yet besides your salary. So that would appeal to you too, yeah? Oh, dude, I was broke up until, um, up until 2015 when, we, um, when Macquarie Bank bought into us 5% of car advice. I, was, I would classify myself as legitimately broke. Um, it's true, just a fact. I mean, that's, that's startup life, isn't it? Like, that's, that's what happened. It's like, you know, you, you, you broke. You're, you're you broke, rich you broke. on paper, though. Well, I guess so. But when I can't sell the shares, what, is they, what are they worth? Mm. You know, like it's it, they weren't. It wasn't publicly listed, so it wasn't like I could borrow against them or anything like that. They were just they were they had a valuation based on the last capital raising. But good luck trying to sell the shares to someone for a for a monetary value that they just gave you and you walked away. So 
anyway, so in 2014, we went down the path of selling the business and, you know, we hired an um, investment banker and sort of spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in getting this packs ready and going and talking to all the people that we thought would be interested. And I remember, I still remember it like it was yesterday. We had a deadline for the date for the office to come through for the sale of this business, right? Like I, we, we would have taken 15, man. Honestly, I would have probably taken 10. I reckon if, it's, if it came at 10, I would have taken 10. But our aim was to get to 15. And, you know, there was some talk of, oh, maybe we'll get 20 or whatever. I was on a flight from Brisbane to Hong Kong on my way to Europe. And uh, the deadline was after I landed in Hong Kong. And I was on that plane. I, was, I think I only had an hour of sleep. or I didn't, It was at a moment where I couldn't stop thinking. And I landed in Hong Kong. And the first thing I did was call Anthony. And I said, tell me, man, what's the good news? He goes, dude, there's been one offer and it's for four mil. Ouch. And I thought... Out, yeah, exactly. Out, man. I actually, I, I had to sit down at the lounge. I like, I like sat down on a chair, and I just sort of, you know, like I won't swear, but I definitely swore. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, and I just thought, you know, damn, like really, after all that, like after eight years of doing all this, this is the best we can do. Like four mil. Like we were making more money as revenue then. We were. We were, our revenues then were like I think eight or nine mil. So it was actually like a an insult offer, if anything. Mm-hmm. And it was only from one party. The rest didn't even bother to put in an offer. It was just like, oh, you're just not worth anything to us. So so that was 2014. We had a CEO change due to some unfortunate circumstances. We had, you know, um, we had a, a, a new CEO put in and we decided, you know what, we're not going to sell. We're not, that's not what we're doing. We're actually going to double down, invest in our business, invest in our content and list the business, right? So... We started that process in 2015. And 2015, I think, of all the years in car advice, was the best. The energy was at its peak. We were hiring people left, right, and center. There were parties on boats. It was like something out of a startup movie. Like, it was out of control. We, once, we spent like 250 grand on this party one time and invited like hundreds of people. And people still talk about it today. It, it was honest to God out of control. But it was so much fun. We just had so much fun. And that was what the energy was like. Every day, people were like, Look forward to coming to work. Look forward to doing stuff. We go go karting. It was, yeah, I, I miss those days, man. I really do. That was a really good year. And as we went down the process of listing, it became pretty evident and leaked to the media that, you know, Cardlass was looking to do a listing, as it would, I suppose. All of a sudden, all these people that had rejected buying us became strangely interested. That, oh, right, so this business is listing. That means obviously it's going to be removed from the pool of companies that could be potentially bought in the future. And these same companies, honest to God, these same companies that couldn't even be bothered to entertain a chat with us, let alone put in an offer, were all of a sudden chasing us for a sale. And I actually thought it was quite humorous. But I said to Andrew, I said, no, we're not, we're not going to go down that path. Like, we're not going to get tricked by these companies into making us think they're going to buy us. Because we've, been that, we've, we've had that before. You know, we, that company that put in a $4 million offer, which I won't name, very much indicated that the offer would be significantly higher. And I think they were just trying to get access to all our data because they were a competitor to us um, to get access to all our data and really understand how we work. So they, they made it sound like it was something which, when it clearly wasn't. And I wasn't going to fall for the same trick twice, right? So I said to them, we give them a one-page document with some facts and figures. If they're interested, you know, NDAs, whatever, we sort of give them a little bit more, but n- nothing. We continue down the path of an IPO. So we did. We continued down the path of an IPO. We were, we were not very far off from it either. But in the last probably two months prior, we had some serious bite from two media companies. One of them eventually dropped out when it just became a bit of a bidding thing. But yeah, I mean, Channel 9 ultimately came in with an offer whereby we thought we could list and this thing could be worth more, but 
for personally for people like me who had, you know, the, the, I was the biggest shareholder in the company, I wouldn't be able to sell shares in a publicly listed company when I was a director and, and a founder. It would just crash the stock market. I mean, sorry, not the stock market, but the stock on the market. <laughs> you look at a company like Kogan. For those of you that don't know, it's a, it's a big sort of retailer, online retailer in Australia. Every time the founder, Ruslan Kogan, sells like a million dollars worth of shares, the shares go down by 10%. It's, it's absurd because he obviously has to declare that he sold some shares. And everyone goes, oh, the, you know, it's falling apart. He's selling out. It's like, well, he's just, you know, he's got like $400 million worth of shares he can't sell. And I was like, and I sort of thought about it. I, thought, you know, I don't want to go down that path mm. where I have to be able to sell in certain windows and certain reporting things and only a little bit here and there and be really cagey about it. Yeah, I might have ultimately maybe, who knows, made more money. But I have no regrets of going down the path of a, um, of a proper takeover from a big media company. All right, a few more questions I'm, I'm curious about before we even talk about that exit, because it's obviously a big deal. You mentioned earlier that Simon Baker, one of your early CEOs, taught you a lot, and he came from a billion-dollar company. Can you talk about a few things that he, he passed on to you? Yeah, look, Simon's a, a McKinsey consultant by trade, so he's um, you know, very much a logical thinker and a business analyst that will come in and tell you you're all idiots, and he'll do it in that term too. So there's no love lost there between him and a lot of people at Paradise, but at the same time, he kind of needed to hear it. You know, he would come in and sit down and go, okay, so where are you guys now? Where do you want to be? And why are you not doing this? And we'd all be like, oh, well, you know, this and that. I was like, yeah, no. So why are you not doing this? Like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it was Honestly, it was something as simple as that. It was just someone telling you, you know what to do. You're just not doing it. And it's like, yeah, that's true. And what it made me do is think a lot more logically and remove a bit of the emotion. Because, you know, it's like when you you see all these shows where you know some business guy go go into a family business and he'll talk to them and they go why, why don't you remove you know like Daryl Lee do you remember Daryl Lee yeah Darryl, the the yep. company yep. yeah right so the guy who bought Daryl Lee um, I, I remember reading into it you know he went in and said so eighty five percent of your revenue is coming from ten percent of your chocolates why do you have the other ninety percent oh because you know grandma from 1989 really liked that recipe and we've always kept it. It's like, yeah, good. Well, grandma's dead and so is the chocolate. It's gone. <laughs> like, you know, it sounds cruel and awful, but the family can't make that decision because no one wants to be responsible for grandma, grandma's chocolate disappearing off the shelves. But it's business. And that's what a outsider party does. They come in and they sort of see things and go, why are you doing this? Why are you doing that? Why aren't you doing more of this? Is there an example um, you that, can give from exactly doing what he said that you weren't doing? Yeah, I mean, it was something as simple as I think it became pretty clear to us that although we love doing a lot of supercar content, it made no money. There was no money in supercar content. It was a halo product that people would have probably come in and heard about us and sort of really helped with industry reputation. But we couldn't sell the page impressions around a, a Ferrari or a Lamborghini review. Like, no, those companies don't advertise. And also, no normal company will advertise around those ads. Like no one wants to pay to wrap an, like a Hyundai ad around a Ferrari review. It just doesn't make any sense. The data doesn't correlate to any sort of purchase intent. So we sort of moved our effort a little bit from instead of doing this sort of high glory content into doing some more rationalized content. Doing what made you sad? Not really, man. Because I knew it. I already knew the answer. And I think just having someone really sort of show it to us. And also, you know, he really helped us raise money. Um, and really sort of frame that system around how we go about raising money, how we go about, you know, doing the investor rounds and all that mm. sort of stuff. So, you know, as, as you said, he, he came from taking realestate.com.au from being worth, I think, about 20 mil or something to a billion dollar company. So the, the, there was some experience there that no one at Car Advice really had. But, you know, it's not just, it wasn't just Simon. There's plenty of other people that sort of helped along the way to get it to where it is. So 
I don't want to. I don't want to point any particular person as the as a as a root cause, but yeah, I think a lot of people had a lot of influence on the direction of the business. Tell me about about uh, Andrew Beecher. So he came on. It sounds like he came on, and then you had that the happy year, as you called it, twenty fifteen. What is the process like to hire a new CEO? How does that work, especially with you? Because I'm assuming you were, you were on the board of directors, and that got set up at some point. You turned into a real company with a board, right? Uh, how does that happen with the CEO? Yeah, so I mean, I was the first CEO, I guess, by default. <laughs> yeah, you have the business card. Yeah, well, my ma- my business card said managing director, so I suppose that's similar. And then we had another CEO, who our first our first proper CEO, who probably was qualified to be one, who took the business to be to do about five or five point five million revenue, and then uh, he left to do actually a car sharing business, which I, which I thought was quite funny. Then we appointed our head of sales who was making us all the money as CEO. And that was a mistake. And that was my mistake. I thought that that was the right move. But I guess salespeople and CEOs are completely different personalities. And, <laughs> yeah. and that, that didn't really work. And he was a great guy. And I say was because he partied pretty hard and went to Vegas for a Bucks party and never came back, unfortunately. What? So, like, yeah. Uh, so, like he was working yeah. for a company and never came back? No, he passed away. In Vegas. Oh, wow. Uh, like, like, wow. Yeah. Okay, Jesus. Yeah. Well, he partied pretty hard, I suspect. And um, so one night I went to bed. Next morning, I didn't have a CEO. So I guess your question, <laughs> how do you go about replacing a CEO? Okay. Is, well, they kind of they tend to replace themselves. It's, okay, wait. Tell me what happens. You wake up in the morning that you found out your CEO died in Vegas. <laughs> what happens during that day? <laughs> it's, like, it's like a movie, right? Like yeah. it's crazy. Um, I am writing a book on all this. I was going to say that like, there should be a book coming, right? <laughs> there is a book coming. Actually, it's it's midway through. Uh, it's been signed to a publisher, but anyway, we'll talk about that at a later point. But yeah, so I mean, this was um, we were in negotiations with Bakari Bank at this time because they wanted to buy a stake in the business, right? And I've done done a few meetings with them. In Sydney, I used to live in Sydney at the time. It was it was a dark period. I think it was 2013. It was not a good time for the business. And you know, we had some people looking, circling, looking to buy some shares in the business, some corporates. And um, Justin was his name, and he'd gone to he'd gone to Vegas for a Bucks thing. Uh, and I was and I'd flown back to Brisbane to see my parents. And uh, one of the staff members called me and said, "Have you heard the news?" And I, and I said, "No." And he goes, "Oh, okay. Well." Maybe you should call, you know, somebody else and ask about the news. And I thought, oh, I don't know. okay, whatever. So I, I, I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm spending time with my parents. I'm, this is why I came down. I'm not gonna, whatever it is, it's probably just some client has pulled the ads or whatever. Like, who cares? Like, I don't, I'll deal with it on Monday. And then someone else called me and said, "Have you heard the news?" I was like, oh crap! All right, this is, this must be something serious. And I finally made a phone call to the person who apparently was going to tell me the news. And they said, oh yeah, Justin's dead. And I was like, what? You mean Justin's dead? Like what? Dead from Big Night Out? Or I think like as a joke, right? He's like, no, I'm serious. He's dead. And I was like, oh my god! Like apart from the shock of I actually like this person and now he's dead and you know he's married and all. Then I thought, you know, crap. What do we do? I'm really, it's really hard not to swear. Yeah, I got to tell you, it's really hard not to swear. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's taking taking a lot of my conscious effort not to swear for you. But uh, <laughs> look, it was it was a really interesting morning. And then I called Anthony and I said dude, like, yeah, Justin's dead. And he's like, what do you mean Justin's dead? And he's like, we repeated the conversation that I just had, except I was the one telling him the news. Right. So at that time, Justin was trying to get Andrew Beecher to come and do some marketing for us because Andrew came from car sales and he was their head of marketing and he'd done some other, he'd done a lot of automotive. And I'd met him and I, you know, thought very highly of him. And he came to Justin's funeral, you know, some weeks later. 
and sort of, you know, we talked for a while and, and you know, and I thought to myself, you know what, this, this guy's got some serious potential here. And I, I sort of pushed for that internal because the board of directors of, of which I was a member of wanted to then begin this massive recruitment process, which we did anyway. And it cost us like a hundred grand to, you know, get recruiters to go and interview people. And we even interviewed, I think like Elle McPherson's brother, which was hilarious. We had a lot of high profile people apply for that job at that point because the company was was well known enough to warrant some uh, some talent, but I was always adamant that we'd use Andrew because you know he gave me the right vibe, gave me the gave me the right energy, and he had a very good belief in content. And you know what? That is that is so hard to find. But with CEOs, some of them are so analytical about you know the numbers and the and the stats and all that. They don't actually have that passion for cars or that passion for content. And that certainly wasn't the case with Andrew. He definitely had that passion, and it took a lot of arm wrestling with the board and a lot of arguments and a lot of pushing and a lot of um, force on my side to basically get Andrew there as the CEO. And yeah, I mean, I guess the rest is history in that sense. I mean, everyone's got their flaws, and that, including myself and Andrew, but I think together we really did. And I do mean that together. Like we, we really worked well together and we sort of really did take the company from where it was to selling it. It was great. It was a great, great last few years. Did you have, like, I, I, I read a lot of startup bios and more and more I'm hearing about founders like uh, you know Uber, Travis Kalanick and uh, Mark, Facebook, they have like super power shares that give them basically control over their company. Yeah. You know, do you like in, in terms of your board and like even hiring a CEO, are you able to instigate that by yourself or do you always have to have, you know, I, I wasn't smart enough to set up like class A and class B shares with you know different voting rights. I, I never, I should have, but I never did, and I will for the next business. But I didn't, and therefore, thankfully, with me and Tony and we and you know and some small friendly shareholders like yourself, we did always have um, majority control of the business up until obviously we sold it. So it only really came unstuck when we required super majority votes, and the person who had written our shareholder constitution was that first initial investor I mentioned before. And there were some really strange clauses in there where it required like 100% of the vote or like 90-something percent of the vote for certain things to take place. And that really made it extremely difficult because one person could hold the power to make something happen or not make something happen. And it just the amount of time that was wasted on, on sort of the bureaucracy and the red tape of stuff because, you know, we had a shareholder that just wasn't willing to cooperate. It was a lot. Like there was a lot of time wasted there, and and I, you know, I, I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from that. And and as good as it was to have this board structure with minutes being taken and records and all that sort of crap, like ultimately most of it was a waste of time. Um, we knew what to do. We knew, we knew how to do it. We just needed to go ahead and do it. And we just had, you know, we just had a lot of infighting at the board level. And that, that's one reason why I think we we did go through the idea of trying to sell in 2014. Because even I was exhausted. I was exhausted by having to just consistently fight for what I knew was the right way, right mm. thing to do. I, I didn't want to fight anymore. I'd lost the fight in me. Now, during all this time, as, as I know very well, you were on planes constantly traveling around the world writing articles about cars. Like that that was your thing. You never were in Australia, it seemed like. And you had, I remember on like Facebook, you were constantly saying, this is my itinerary for the next three weeks. You know, it was like, Spain and then Dubai and then Brisbane and then Sydney and then, then New York and then like yeah. all over the place. Well, yeah, I, I um I think for the last three four years consistently I was in the top twenty most frequent flyers for Qantas, <laughs> and uh, the, for the last I think five or six years my average flights per year would have been over two hundred and fifty. 
at least. I think one year I even cracked 300. It's, it was insane. Like, I'm, it's actually insanity. I still, I still fly, but not as much. La- last year I did 19 overseas flights, as in 19 trips overseas. And in the middle of that, obviously, there's a lot of other flying domestically. Like, I would, I'm going to Melbourne, Sydney every week. I'll, I'll go somewhere else. I'm always flying somewhere. And, yeah, so in the middle of this, whilst I, I was, you know, I got married, I had kids. <laughs> yep. You know, there's a, there's a lot going on there, right? Now, you gained weight and then you lost weight too, right? <laughs> yeah, man. I, I, basically, my lifestyle involves me uh, sitting in a car, sitting on a plane, sitting in front of a computer. That was what my life became because that's what I did. I remember, it's funny, it's funny you mentioned the weight thing. I remember you, um, I remember when I... When I was in Sydney, I, I, we bought a scale because I was like, "Oh, I look a little bit fat." And I was like, "Oh, I didn't notice. I didn't. I didn't notice I was fat." Like, you know, my wife's very kind. She would. Ne- my wife's absolutely gorgeous, and she would never ever say that to me. But I bought a scale, and you know, I remember weighing like seventy-eight kilos, and I stood on it, and it said like hundred and three. I was like, "Oh, that must be broken, right?" Like, I had my my. No, I genuinely, I thought, "Oh, this honey, this thing's broken. Like the um the scale's broken because my body image in my mind had never changed." Right. And uh, and I went and got another scale. I literally went and got another scale. I went, oh, I don't know, this one's, this one's broken. This is this. And I got another scale and I stood on it. And I went, oh, it's actually said 103.5 or something. It's slightly higher. And I went to the mirror and I like looked at myself side on. I went, holy fuck, I'm fat. Like it was the we- <laughs> it was the weirdest realization. It's like one of those moments of, oh my god, like I didn't know that. Like I just I didn't realize I was fat. Uh-huh. And uh, at least I came to accept it and I didn't do anything about it. Because I just didn't have the mental capacity till you know a few years later, but and a it had a huge effect on my life. I had kidney stones because mm. of all the flying. I still I've got three kidney stones in me at this very moment that I'm talking to, and yeah, Ouch. like I mean, you, yeah, you spend that much time on a plane, dehydrated or traveling, or just the plane atmosphere is not conducive to good health. So yeah, look, it takes a lot out of you, man. Like the lifestyle that I that I have lived, and I guess to an extent I still do live, is is a uh, is fantastic. I love it because I love cars and I love the industry. And I'm much healthier now because I go to the gym every single day and I eat really well. But it did take a lot out of me. It really sort of affected me both physically and mentally. So it wasn't all rosy and fun and flying around and doing first class travel, which I did do. But it, it, it's there's a lot more to it that I just I guess I don't put on social media for people to see. Mm. Yeah, well, a lot of a lot of writing too. I remember you like myself. You put pictures up of doing what I did, laptop lifestyle, sitting in a cafe with your laptop, writing an article for your blog. That's what I'm doing the second we hang up. I'm right. going to a cafe to sit down and write some more. Yeah, I love that. That's, that's, that's the best part of my life. I love going somewhere, sitting down. I still go to Three Monkeys here. That's exactly where I'm going. <laughs> I know, after, my old head office. Um, <laughs> that's it. It's now my new head office. <laughs> Take me forward with you and, and you know Andrew comes on. You're happy. You got the CEO you wanted. Uh, you guys eventually start to make you make that decision, we're doing an IPO. Can you just give me a little bit behind the scenes with the IPO process? Not that you guys ended up doing it, because I am kind of curious. That's a long way from Albor's sitting in his parents' you know bedroom, writing car blog posts to potentially listing on the Australian stock market and being you know one of the that sort of poster child of a startup who who goes public. Did you sort of? Um, Take stock, or is it more of like we just got to do this because I got to get my money out and you know get, you know get some you know equity and get rid of these bad investors and so on? Yeah, look, I mean, ten years is a long time, Yarrow. As you know, it's a it's a long time, and I think whilst the energy was fantastic in fifteen and also sixteen, there was a part of me that was like you know like as I said to you before. I mean, let, let me go back a little. In two thousand fifteen, when uh, Macquarie bought I think five percent of our business. 
And Macquarie's the a bank. Is, Macquarie is the biggest financier of car loans in Australia. So Macquarie Bank is a huge bank, but yes, they're also the they basically fund the car industry in terms of finance. And they wanted to have a stake in us because we were the biggest new car editorial website in Australia. And they wanted to sort of leverage that to help get get more finance. But also what they wanted to do is be able to call up people and say, hey, your lease is coming up. It's been three years on this car. Do you want to, you, you should look at a new one. Here's what we rec- Here's what Car Advice recommends. And they could say that knowing that when they sent them to Car Advice, there was no other leasing company, there was no other finance company that was competing for that space. So they kind of bought themselves an information, access to information in a friendly way that, you know, we own part of them. There was an exclusivity where we wouldn't be having anybody else. Oh. So, so basically you know they take I mean? a little bit of shares and that then forces you to not use any competitors to, to them for advertising insurance. Is that right? Or uh, sorry, finance. For finance. That's correct. Yes. And it obviously sounds they, kind of sneaky. Well, they also became our finance partner. So they're also paying us for it. But I think they felt more comfortable having a shareholding in it. So we couldn't just. Mm. And that happens a lot though, day. doesn't it? Like let's face it, a lot of companies get financiers who buy a share of a company like Google buys into Uber and then like starts developing their own car, automatic cars, and it's like all this yeah. crossover of capital and ownership and revenue streams and so on. So it's not that unusual. No, not at all, except we're not Uber, but yeah, <laughs> um, we're like a, a, a billionth of the size. Yeah, but, but you're in Australia, yeah, smaller same, market. You yeah, know. <laughs> exactly. S- similar concept. So that transaction in 2015 was the first time I ever sold a single share in car advice. And it felt amazing. It was like this capital injection of a few hundred grand. And I just kept getting receipts from the bank. You know, I just kept going and getting more printouts because I was like, wow, this, like uh, there's, there's, there's money in my bank account. That's amazing. You know, I, was, I went from being broke to having some money in the bank account. Did, so, uh, did you buy the Aston Martin at that point? I did, and that was a pretty stupid thing to do. <laughs> Tell us about that. So I know Alvarez when he bought this orange Aston Martin. So you looked apart finally, I guess, you know, the owning a car as well as driving the cars, right? Yeah, and you know what? At the time, it was it was the wrong decision, but over time, it was the best decision I ever made. Explain. So when I bought it, I shouldn't have bought it because it was the first time we had some money. You know, we just, you know, my wife and I, we, we just bought a house it took. I had to remove myself from our board of directors so the bank would give me a loan. Oh wow! Because the yeah, because the bank was like, "What? You work for a company? You're a director?" I was like, "Yes." It's like, "Oh no, that's too risky." It was like, "Okay, well, why?" Because oh, you control your own salary and this could be manipulated. All these crap rules. So, so wow. I, I went, "Okay, hang on." I removed myself from the board of directors, applied for the loan, they approved it, then I put myself back on the board. It was like the dumbest thing. <laughs> oh wow! That you, you could it, it, honestly like it was ridiculous that the banks the banks do not comprehend if you work for yourself they just they hate it it's like it's a terrible thing so when i got this money what i should have probably done was go hey let's you know pay off the house or let's pay off half the house or whatever and or let's put it as an offset so that it reduces our mortgage our, payments. Uh, interest or, yeah. yeah mortgage payments whatever but it, instead i was like you know what like i i felt like at that point it was nine years i spent nine years doing this i, I really sort of wanted something for myself and toy. the reason yeah the reason i bought the aston is because aston martin was the first proper car company that ever gave us a car. And I know the guy gave it to me, uh, and I'm still friends with him, but he, he was the first guy that looked at us and went, like, this is a fucking eight-month-old business with two cowboys, but I liked them. Like, he came and met us, and I went, oh, these guys have got passion. These guys have got... And Aston Martin's a very prestigious brand. You know, they're not a... It's not like Ford. It's, it's, it's a very different type of uh, consumer. But he saw something in us, and went, you know, I'm going to give these guys a chance. I'm going to give them a car to review. 
And we did a great review and obviously that relationship blossomed. And it's still today, we have an amazing relationship with Aston Martin. But I remember driving that car in Brisbane over the Story Bridge. And I said to myself, you know, it's, it's really cruel to give a poor person a really expensive car. Because for a few days, they live this life that is not real. You know, they, they experience what is not real because that car goes back. And all the feelings and all the emotions that come with people thinking you own this or all the... It disappears. And it's like this constant... Oh, you mean as a car um, reviewer? Yeah, it's a constant form of torture for someone that loves cars and attention, which is both me. Because <laughs> you have to give them back, I see. <laughs> I have to give them back. And I remember like stories of having, you know, you get so much attention in these cars. But I remember I once, I had a Kia Carnival, which for someone, people that don't know, it's a seven-seat people mover van. And I remember the day before I had an Aston Martin and I'd given the Aston back and I picked up this seven-seat people mover and I pulled up at the lights and I looked over and there's this convertible of four of the hottest girls I'd seen in a very long time. And they didn't even turn around and look because I was in this Kia people mover. And I thought to myself, man, if that Aston was here right now, this would be a very different night. And I, and I just, you know, like it, it, was, it was a form of consistent torture. So to bring it back, the reason I bought the car is because I was, I, and I had told myself, if I ever make money, this is what I'm buying. And I literally got the money, went and bought the car within a week. And I was, uh, I was delighted. I was so happy. And I, and I still have that car. It's actually sitting five meters away from me right well, now. And I, I, I still drive it every day and it still makes me happy. Why orange, the color of the car? It was the only, uh, it's called Carousel Orange. It's the corner of the Nürburgring. It's, it's a special edition Aston. And uh, it was the only orange one in Oz. And it was almost, honest to God, identical to the logo of Car Advice's orange. Like the sh- if, I, if I was to do a, like a sample color, it would have been almost identical. Yeah. And I wasn't looking for an orange one, but this one showed up. I bought it in 20 minutes uh, from when I saw it to when it was advertised to when I bought it. I called the guy up. He sent me a photo. I said, don't, here's my credit card. Don't do anything. It's coming. I'm, I'm buying it. It's the how, much is a, how much is an orange, Aston? Oh, uh, look, the, the, I think that the car when I bought it was roughly about 200 by the time I got it. So um, you gave away a pretty big chunk of your sold equity to buy that car. when you. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And the reason I say I have, I, I have no regrets now is because that opened a door to me that had previously been closed. And that was being part of a community of these high-end cars with people that I've now met and have become extremely good friends with that also inspired me to do a lot more. So, you know, when you hang out with people that are much more successful than you, you tend to become more successful. And had I not gone down that path, that door would never have been open to me. And so my friendship circle today as a result of that car ownership is completely different to what it was, you know, three, four years ago. And as a result of that, I've made decisions that have been really financially rewarding that I would definitely have not made had I not been in that, uh, in that circle. And it's weird to think of it as simple as that, but in all honesty, like that's what it came down to. It was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't know these people. I didn't know this. I didn't have this circle of influence, and and now I do, and it's it's had a huge impact on me. So you're saying you bought an expensive car, and then you joined an expensive car club with other expensive car owners who happen to all be very wealthy, therefore successful because they can afford that kind of car, and that got you into their friendship circle, and and. You know, access to them as friends, just you know, advice, wisdom. Well, I, it was like having a bit of a mastermind group, really. Like okay. you got access. It was like buying a ticket into this community where, they are, what do you do? I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, I'm a surgeon, I'm an investor, I'm a property developer. So I was all right, okay. And just sort of getting to know what they do, or how they make money. I started investing in things. You know, I, I met a guy who made a crap ton of money out of the stock market. I had never even considered the stock market as a, as an option for anything. And then when I, when I sold 
the business in 2016. Like this was only a, maybe eight months after I bought the Aston. I had this huge amount of money coming, you know, millions of dollars coming into the bank account. And I had no idea what to do with it. But I had met all these people that were making a lot of money doing things with money they had. So I started doing stuff with that money. And I remember in the first year, I was 40% up on my stocks. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that was not that hard. That's, that's really easy, you know, because I was just following, I was following advice from people that may, could have been completely wrong for all I know, but thankfully they weren't. The car paid for itself in so much capacity so quickly. And I was like, right, okay, I'm, I don't regret that decision whatsoever in retrospect. Interesting. Okay, so let's go back to, I mean, first of all, let's just say that's a great hack, Alvor. If anyone listening, buy yourself a nice car, get yourself elevated in social status. <laughs> but think about it logically. People that can afford a half million dollar car or a million dollar car are not, are not usually stupid or bad with money. They're not, they're not people that just have gone out there and went, I've only got this much money, I'm going to buy a car. I mean, sure, that probably exists somewhere, but in Australia, that's definitely not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people that own really expensive cars tend to be relatively wealthy. And they, they also share a passion of cars, and therefore, if you share that passion with them, they tend to you tend to become friends first, and then you learn a lot of stuff from them. And you know, they so a lot of them learn stuff from me because they had no idea how to how sort of the digital stuff works. Mm. So I helped them with some of their businesses in terms of helping their digital presence and things like that, and I got a lot of help from them. So, yeah, as I said, it, it opened up a community to me that was previously completely untapped, and it, it was very rewarding. What, what is the? Is it like just like a automobile club, or what is it? You know what, man? It, it's Australia's Australian car culture is amazing. So yeah, there's a lot of clubs, there's a lot of events. Like I just did a track day with the Brisbane Supercar Club yesterday at Queensland Raceway, and it was fantastic. You know, it was just endless Ferraris and Astons and Porsches and all sorts of stuff there, and just really, really good, decent people that are all self-made and successful and have great stories to tell and great networking. And it's, it's like it inspires me to do more, inspires me to be better, and that's sort of what I'm trying to surround myself with. So yeah, yeah, you mentioned that. Uh, something you took away from from those people changed how you were running car advice. Can, can you remember an example specifically? Oh, look, there's a lot of um, you get a lot of advice from people that have had really good success and exits and things like that. You know, like I, that's been a big help. I don't know if I can pinpoint anything in particular, but it, it certainly helped me grow up a bit in how I dealt with the corporate side of things. Like I, there was, a, I've always been quite a where you're hard on your sleeve type of guy, so. You know, if something really irritated me because I knew it was wrong, I wouldn't deal with it in a way to get an outcome that I knew how to get the outcome. I would deal with it in a way that was quite emotional and I would get really agitated by it. Instead of just going, okay, what do I want to get out of this? How do I get it? Let's do it that way. Mm. Would have still been the same outcome just without the stress. So I think there's a lot of learnings in that regard about just, you know, what do you want from it? Let's just get what you want rather than try and get angry about it. So, okay. yeah, it was, it was a good experience. Okay, so let's go back to Macquarie buying in. We just went a bit of a tangent there, but it's a cool one. So Macquarie buys in 5%, you get to exit. I am kind of curious, though, how do you decide as a founder how much you're willing to sell at that sort of, you know, pre-IPO equity raising time frame? And to go along with that question, how do you even decide how much to sell of your company and, and you know dilute the shares of everyone else and value the company? Well, we, we, we didn't dilute for Macquarie. We sold existing shares. So they wanted to buy. One of the, I mean, the, the way we structured the deal was if you want to buy in the company, you have to buy from existing shareholders. And I think Anthony and I were the only ones that sold because I think most of the other shareholders were quite wealthy and didn't need the money and they knew the valuation wasn't good enough. So I think the valuation we sold to Macquarie was about twenty-five, if I remember correctly. Uh, if I remember, which was still amazing, a lot better than four million about a year before. So it was, um, it was, an, you know, it was interesting to get there, sort of thing. Um, I think it was either twenty or twenty-five. I can't remember, but so I sold some shares. Tony sold some shares. Had I not sold those shares, they would have been worth three times as much. But 
you know, at the time, I really needed that cash. I needed a break from, I guess, the financial pressures that had mounted over a 10 year period of running a startup on a pretty average salary and working 12 hour days and, you know, kids, house, wife, all that sort of stuff. And this weird concept, and, you know, this is a bit of a personal thing for me, but this weird concept where everybody thought I had a lot of money and I really didn't. Like, I, I, I mean, yeah, the shares were worth a lot of money. And, you know, we had all these press releases going out, you know, like Car Advice raised money at $20 million valuation. It's like, you know, and, and Albert was fellow is the biggest shareholder. It's like, yeah, but I can't sell those shares. Like, they, you know, like there's no value there. I couldn't even get a bank loan, like I said, because those shares, as far as the bank was concerned, was worthless. So I think to have some money in the bank, it felt good and I needed to do it. And I needed to just de-stress financially. And it, it really did help even though I did buy a car and sort of spent most of it. But, um, <laughs> you know, buying a car you can't afford to upkeep is a really terrible yeah. idea. <laughs> uh, I guess you knew a, a, a proper complete exit was probably on the horizon or at least some kind of... No, man, I, 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 didn't, I honestly did not know that. I knew we were going to list and I knew that the risks of that were that I could not sell. I, w- I mean, I, I would have had an escrow for at least 18 months, if not two years. So even post-listing... I may have had, I may have been unable to sell a cent of shares for 18 months to because that's quite common for founders to be escrowed for long periods of time. We were hoping for 12 months, but there was a chance it would have to be 18 because that gives the market confidence that you know you're here and you're going to you're going to make it work because it's in your benefit as well. You know, ultimately, I think when the offer came in for a sale, it was a I wouldn't say an easy easier way out, but it was a safer way out, and I, and, and you know, we all sort of agreed that that was the way to go. Okay, I know we've been going for a while, but I'm I'm loving this, and hopefully the audience is too. You know, this is, this is one situation where I know you for a long time, so I feel like I can really dive deep. And you know, you're you're very open and transparent, Albor, so I appreciate that. I do remember, oh, geez, I don't know when it was, but it was when Andrew Beecher had come in as your CEO, and it felt like you guys had done something that I'd read about a lot. I was I'd read so many books that were talking about focus on your core advantage or your core strength or a USP, whatever it is, and just really build on that. And Andrew came in with that idea and said, no more of these side thingies like marketplaces or, you know, we're just going to focus on content and monetizing with high paying advertising. And that's what you focused on. And that's when I think the podcast branch of your company and the and the expansion into video content started to happen. And you really became a, a media player across multiple content platforms, still doing your core strength, right? Which is content about cars, but branching out so you can have more page views. You're on YouTube, you're on iTunes and so on. So that worked, right? That strategy? Absolutely. And I, and I think that's the reason why um, when Andrew joined, we must have been doing Oh, I don't know, maybe maybe ten or twelve mil revenue, and we sort of almost doubled that. I think it was probably a little less than ten, but we we, didn't, we nearly doubled our revenue and substantially more on our profit side. And all we did, honestly, all we did was focus on content. We just spent. Let's just stop all this other crap that we're doing. What are we making? It's like it's like that Daryl Lee chocolate thing I gave an example for. We're you know eighty percent of actually it was like ninety five percent of our money comes from our content and selling the advertising and the data and all that around it. Why don't we just do more of it? <laughs> it's, it seems ridiculous when you put it in such simple terms, but that's what it was. And we just doubled down on content. We hired more content creators. We hired a full video team. We just went crazy spending money on, and we did spend a lot of money on content creation. And it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy because when the industry sees this player go, right, okay, we're doubling down on content and sees everybody going there to work for them, 
and sees the video production go up and all that stuff, then they go, right, well, we need to be here. Like we need to ramp up our spend. So, but someone, we had to take a leap of faith. We had to jump into the abyss in the hope that all this capital we were about to invest would be returned. And, you know, to the credit of the industry, they, I think they, they realized that and they supported what we were doing because they were in need of quality content. They were in need of a organization that put content first and, our job has always been, you know, every new car, every last detail. And, and that is a legitimate claim because we do try and review every new car to the every last detail. And that's what we ended up doing, that we came up with that motto, we came up with that concept, and we just went hard at it. We went so hard at it. And that was the best period of car advice for me. Even, you know, all the startup stuff was fantastic. But that period where we were well-funded, well-managed, and the energy was absolutely electric. Those last few years was a really, a real hoot, and I'll, um, I think I'll always remember them. So it's a great way to uh, sort of get to a point where we sold the business. Just focusing on what we always knew we were best at. So tell us about this exit and how this all works. So I guess the IPO is so connected, even though you didn't have the IPO. Can you tell us what happens getting prepared for an IPO? We, you know, I know from the, the media side, you hear about the, the junket that you have to do as a CEO or, or a founder where you're presenting to the investors or the potential investors, to the finance people. You're bringing on board a finance partner to do the running of the listing. You have to get your, you know, your T's crossed, your I's dotted, everything in place, get your, your financials good. Is that all happening behind the scenes? And how much are you involved with that as a, as a founder? Or are you are you just doing car reviews as you always were? No, no. I, I was I was look. I was I was on the board, and I was at that point. I was pretty involved in a lot of the other stuff of the business, not just the content. The content is still what has always driven me, and that's what I love, and that's what I'll continue to love. But at that point, I, I was personally trying to get more involved because it was pretty important to me because it was it was ninety nine point nine percent of my net worth <laughs> um, <laughs> in that in that company, right? And I didn't, I, and I needed to take a personal interest because I was the biggest beneficiary. And it was important for me. One thing we did really well, and I, I suppose that really helped us, but we also gave Andrew a you know a substantial shareholding in the company. And he bought some shares, but we also issued a lot of shares because there needed to be a big incentive for him to get us to where we wanted to go. And that was so that he would make you know millions of dollars himself, which he did as part of the sale. And that strategy of alignment allowed him and I and Tony and you know everybody else that had shares. And you know, I, I probably didn't mention this, but we gave away 15% of our shares to our staff. So there was a lot of shareholders that were working for us. It was a, like we all felt like we owned a bit of this because we did. Obviously, I had the most, but people that had, you know, a couple hundred grand worth of shares, they, they were still going to make a lot of money if this thing succeeded. So we, we all worked together as a result. And getting ready for an IPO, just, I mean, God, we spent so much time on planes flying to corporate bank meetings and just listening to, just stuff that I just thought was a complete waste of time. But, you know, we needed to be prepared for analysts asking questions and you got to do a lot of media roadshows and all that sort of stuff. We did a pre-IPO round. So we raised through an investment bank, private equity, all sorts of things. We, we did a pre-IPO round prior to listing at a, oh, I can't remember the valuation. I, I think it's somewhere in the 20s, high 20s. And uh, I mean, every one of those people made money. You know, I think they, they, all, they all made at least 10 to 15% on their money. For those that didn't sell in the initial first phase, they probably even doubled or tripled their money. But So we did a lot of those roadshows. We spent a lot of time. There's so much documentation and death by PowerPoint and God knows what else. <laughs> I wasn't enjoying that side of it, but I was excited about the prospect of what we were doing. But like, as I said, you know, whilst that was all going on, 
conversations were being had on the side about a takeover bid. And although I was very wary and quite conscious of the fact that this could just be a ruse or this, I mean, I wasn't paranoid, but I, I'd gone through it before. You know, it really hurt two years earlier. You know, as I said, that memory is very raw. I remember where I was in Hong Kong airport when I cut, when I got the phone call telling me we had no offers except for a, for a you know, bullshit one at four mil. I was like, yeah, no, we're going down the path of IPO. We're going we're gonna to have to do this. But yeah, I, was, I guess the further along we got, you know, there was some media leaks about the IPO and that really brought in some interest from potential media companies. And, and um, I remember being in the office of our, of our then chairman, who was our previous CEO, who, you know, helped along the way with this as well. At his, um, he was the CEO of some, uh, you know, car sharing company. And we were in his office at like 1.30 a.m. in the morning signing the documents for this sale. And they had like a, I don't know, it was a bottle of scotch or something. And it was, and they, they had this, this is the strangest thing. Their, their mascot was like some weird animal. And they had this, they had this costume of their mascot sitting around. And I remember just putting it on. <laughs> and it was, oh God, it was just such a strange thing to sign all these documents for this sale and at this random office and, it was surreal, man. It was really surreal. So I, um, I had an aim in my life. I wanted to be a millionaire before 30. And I missed it by two weeks. I did. I missed it by two weeks. And, in, and I know I shouldn't be sad about it, but I literally missed it by two weeks. And uh, I remember when I sold the business, when we sold it. And so we sold it in two halves, as I said before. And the first half of the money went into my account. And you know when I said to you before where I went and got printouts of that initial few hundred thousand that went in? from Macquarie this time, you know, we're talking millions and dude, I, I must've got a hundred printouts of that thing. Like I, <laughs> I, cause I had my net bank app on my phone, my internet banking app. And it gives me, a, it gives me a little thing when someone puts in money and it came up with a notification, you know, someone has paid you this much money. I was like, Holy shit. <laughs> like, like I, I've got a screenshot of that notification because how many times in life will you get a notification where someone has put in that substantial amount of money in your bank account? And, um, when I looked at myself in the mirror, I, I literally, I looked at the phone and when I looked at myself in the mirror, I said, oh, you're, you're a millionaire now. And then I said, oh, I don't feel any different. I didn't feel any different. I, I sort of just sat in my room for an hour, just kept looking at this thing and trying to comprehend what that meant for my life. Not having to ever fucking worry about anything again in, in, in a way, you know, like not having to think about, you know, are my kids going to be okay? Or are my kids going to have food? Or are we going to have a roof over our head? That was all gone. It was finished. Like that, that side of my life ended in a one second notification and it blew my mind like i i felt quite emotional about it and mm. and then i thought oh but that's it then it was finished that, then it was gone then i went downstairs i went to work and we all had a beer and laughed about it and then the next day i went back to writing about cars right that which, was it man well <laughs> yeah now i remember this because I, as a very small shareholder i had an opportunity to sell during that first exit of the first half of the company, and then there was the second half that just happened in 2018. Now, that's when I decided to exit at your final exit. So you got that. Ex I guess you got the experience again, didn't you? Because you got another well, I got it. Yeah, which was much more. <laughs> yeah, the second one didn't feel nearly as much because by that point, I was, um, it was different. When you have that first injection of capital, your mindset changes very much. Yeah. And I was very conscious of not letting, as the saying goes, the money get to your head. It, it's hard to say that and act it, but mm. it does have an effect on anyone. When, when you know you, you make very different life decisions when you don't need money. I cannot put it any other way. You you will do things very differently when you don't have financial constraints. Like if I like if I don't like to do something, I just don't do it, even if there is a financial reward, and mm. I just don't care. It doesn't affect me. I I'd rather just be happy. And those are not the decisions that I could have made prior to that day. 
So when the second tranche came in, I was like, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And it was actually sad because that meant that I no longer had a single share in my own company. Mm. And that was quite a sad day. Like it was amazing to get this amount of money in your bank. But I literally did not have a single, I remember, you know, when Steve Jobs left Apple, he said he left one share in so he could attend the the um, board meeting, it's not the board meeting, sorry, the general um, annual meetings mm. and get the shareholder reports. I couldn't do that. The deal was they had to get rid of, they had to buy all of it. So I, I actually said to them, I want to keep one share. They said, no, you can't. I was like, it doesn't mean anything. It's like it's, the shares were like $90 a share or whatever they were. I'll just keep one share. No, they wouldn't let me keep a share. And I, it's kind of, I was like, I just want to have, feel like I've got something left mm. in this because it was such a big part of my life. I wanted to feel like I still had a, even though it was completely insignificant and meaningless, it meant something to me. But it was it. I was out. I was an employee. And that was the, in 2018, in November, almost a year ago now, it was the first time in an extremely long period of my life that I became an employee. And it never really sat with me very well. And that's a different story, I suppose. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. So you completely exit your company, but you stay on because you love cars and you still want to write about them and have access to them. How do you feel, though? Because I'm, I'm guessing, and I, I also am assuming you know, there isn't an earnout period because you're not listing, right? You you are literally exiting, exiting. So the only reason to stay on, it's no longer monetarily, it's no longer ownership. It's because you love the job, right? And and how did you think about your future going on? Plus, and I have to mention a few things, you got a lot of press coverage when this sale came through, in particular you, your story as a child of immigrants from Iran, the classic $35 domain name turned into $35 million story, even though that's not quite the right number, but it still is a great press angle. So how did your life change outside of the business as well? And how did that impact your decision and what to do next? Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the it's funny because, you know, Andrew said to me, try your best not to get any press. And I was like, Andrew, how well do you fucking know me? <laughs> like... <laughs> I have an orange Aston Martin. Like, how, how would you? How, how is that even a possible request? You know, oh, trust me. And what's your license plate, uh, Alvor? Say. Well, the, the previously on the Aston, it was it was uh, the number plate was stop me, which is now on my Ferrari. So the um, the yeah, so that that gets that Ferrari that Ferrari gets a lot of attention with those number plates. But yeah. anyway, so I actually genuinely hoped not to get much press because I was like, oh look, let's just see how it goes. Who knows what's going to come out of it? You know, I, I don't know because I work in the media, man. I know how things work. And if they take a wrong angle, it could backfire on you. So I was like, look, it's probably not worth it. You know, I've made money. Let's just, let's just go. The problem was I worked with people in the media also. And media is media. It doesn't matter if it's automotive. So one of a journalist who worked for a competing publication had heard about the sale through our staff because everyone was excited because a lot of people made a lot of money. And I wasn't telling him not to say anything because why would you? I mean, you can't hide that. It was going to be pretty obvious. So someone, some journalist who covered automotive but also covered general news had heard of this story of this sale, made some inquiries, called me up. I, in my complete state of, I wouldn't say inauguration, but I was just in delight. I was so happy that you know the sale had gone through and everything. I told him probably more than I probably should have. And this is probably the case here talking to you, Yarrow. But, uh, <laughs> but that's just uh, my Small audience, personal. don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. So this guy wasn't a small audience. He worked for news.com.au, which is the biggest news site in Australia. And he wrote a story that was, as you said, in the tone of, you know, Iranian immigrant 
I think they actually called me a refugee, which I'm not. But anyway, <laughs> the story the story worked better when it sounded like oh you know, I came on a boat. Yeah. I came on a plane. It was pretty comfortable. But they really ran with that angle of, you know, immigrant from the Middle East turns 35 into $35 million from his parents' bedroom. Sounds like a good story. There's 90% of it's true. You know, obviously, there's uh, 10 years of working there. And he wrote it for news.com.au. And I, and I saw this story because he was sort of buried. And I thought, oh, well, no one's going to see that, right? No one's going to see that. Within like an hour of that thing going live, it obviously rated so well. The algorithm made it the feature article of the website. Like literally the first thing you saw the homepage. When, you went, when you went to the website for about 12 hours, it was my face was on news.com.au as the, above the fold, well and truly above the fold as the feature image. And it went absolutely insane. And I just, I, my phone like exploded like I had to like plug it in while I was talking to people because it was just ringing nonstop. And um, you must have loved that. I did like, yeah. It kind of overwhelmed me. I mean, for someone that loves attention, it even overwhelmed me. And I could tell you how much attention it got. It went viral, I suppose. I, I was, I did, must have done fifty, sixty radio interviews. I did TV stuff. I did that. I did this. And I got so much attention. I even got the attention of the Australian Taxation Office. <laughs> so okay, <laughs> so they, they came for me pretty hard, pretty rapidly, which was one of the reasons why everybody said, "Hey, let's not uh, let's not get too much media attention." But I had nothing to hide, man. Like I, I've always I've always done the right thing. So I was like, "Yeah, whatever." Like I'm not hiding anything. One thing I will say, and I don't know where your listeners are from generally, Yara, whether they're Australians or Americans or, or global. One thing I will say is in Australia, we don't celebrate success in the same way as the Americans or North Americans do. So where in America, where someone has like a great windfall or a victory or, or something, there's a lot of success, there's a lot of congratulations, there's a lot of that that goes on afterwards. In Australia, we have something called tall puppy syndrome where people will naturally assume you're successful because you've done something wrong. You, you've been dodgy or or you've been lucky, or there, there is an element of excuse being made for someone else's success because you feel like that could have been you, but you didn't do this, or you didn't have supportive parents, or you didn't have the money. Man, I, I came from a broke family. Like I, I came from a very, you know, middle class family. My parents were very well educated, but you know, we we migrated from Iran when I was nine, and we had nothing here. We literally came with nothing. So there was no there was no financial backing. There was none of that. There was just a lot of determination. And a lot of that got to me, you know, a lot of the criticism got to me about, oh, you know, this guy's just lucky and blah, blah, blah. Because mm. I knew what it took to get there. There's a lot of sacrifices. So whilst there was a lot of um, positive press, there was also a lot of negative sentiment. And that took me a while to deal with. And I felt I didn't, although I, I knew about that, like emotionally, I was able to understand how these people, I mean, I've got a degree in psychology. I'm very much into that understanding that sort of human behavioral patterns and things like that. But it still took a little bit of time for me to sort of go, right, I can't believe all these people have so much hate. And I, I guess whilst I should have known, I wasn't expecting it. And it sort of took me by surprise. Mm. So that was the biggest thing for me with that media thing was the amount of sort of, you know, negative sentiment I felt as well. So it wasn't all happy-go-lucky, I suppose. And your your plans for your future at that time, was it you, did you just keep doing the job because you didn't know what else to do with your life? Because you could have done nothing. You could have just hang out with your kids, right? Stop yeah. traveling as much. Get rid of those kidney and stones. My, <laughs> my wife always jokes that if I ever stop working, we'd get divorced because um, you know, like, I'm so annoying when I'm home. So you know, there's, probably, there's probably no element of truth in that, but it is quite a valid statement in a sense that I am at my happiest when I'm working. That is only further extended by me saying I'm at my happiest when I'm working on something I love. That's where I'm going back to now. You know, like I, I tried the... You know, so I suppose you know it's, it's worth saying I, I am I am leaving my 
my job at Car Advice. I'm um, in the process of leaving that. There is a uh, there's an extended period of time from when I can leave after I have given notice. So I am in the process of extracting myself, not because I don't love the company anymore. Obviously, there is so much of me in Car Advice and from the orange logo that's still there to the concept of content and how it all works is a lot of it is, you know, came from Tony and I, and it's still there and it very much is still kicking. And it's now the biggest editorial car site in Australia. Like we took over our, all our competitors. We took over Drive as part of the Fairfax merger. You know, we're, we're so big now, it's hilarious. We're in the newspapers, we're on TV, we have a TV show, we have a radio show. It's absurd. Our reach is astronomical. It's never been so big. And you would think that I would just go, right, I'm going to just enjoy the Power. The next two years and the power, the power is insane. In, in, as an industry sort of mouthpiece, as an industry media organization, our power is now unrivaled by anyone. However, we're now owned by a corporate entity and, and that brings along a very different culture that I have never been happy or used to. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good corporate citizen in that sense of being able to, you know, just spend all day doing reports and sort of managing up. And I like to make shit happen. You know, I, I don't like wasting time. I don't, I don't like procedures that I feel are meaningless. And I'm not saying they are meaningless, but they feel meaningless to me. So I'm, yeah, I'm in the process of restarting, man. I've got I to do what I love. And what I, you know, the, the university that you and I met at made me an honorary professor, an honorary adjunct professor. And I am the entrepreneur in residence at, at the University of Queensland. And I do a lot of speaking there. And I do, you know, I've done graduation speeches there. I, I do a lot of stuff with students there, mentoring and otherwise that, I feel really good about it. You know, I, I try and instill in them just the basic concept that you can go and work for yourself. Like, you know, car advice was the 17th business I started, as, as you would know from the previous podcast. So I have failed a lot. And just try and get these people to understand that in case you fail, you can keep going because, you know, you're only ever one step away from success after a failure. So it's it's this journey and you got to continue to strive for it. But in those same lectures, I always talk about how the reason a startup is successful is because it's not stuck in a corporate bureaucracy of red tape. It's not stuck in this environment where all you do is do management reports and board meetings and, and meetings about meetings and plans about plans, literally plans about plans. That's what I'm doing. I'm not even making that up. I'm doing plans about plans. <laughs> and it just blows my mind. And in all seriousness, at the last lecture I did at the university, I actually stopped myself for about five seconds while I was talking about this and realized I had this weird self-realization, like when I realized I was fat. I realized that's what I'm doing now. What I'm saying to these people not to do is what I am currently doing. And I smiled and I continued with the lecture and I decided at that point that I was going to resign and leave. So, I'm, And I'm doing it with the best people. So the people that I started the business with are coming with me. And I feel like it's a fitting end to what has been an incredible sort of 13 years of my life. It's the longest relationship I've ever had with anything, <laughs> except for my parents, obviously. But um, yes. there's a, a part of me that feels really sad to walk out that door, and that'll be quite soon when I do walk out that door, and that'll be the last time. But I guess you've got to change, right? You've got to move. You've got to move on to new new things. And I'm going to be back in Odo, and I'm going to do something in that space in, in due time. A startup, I'm but, assuming? Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I know how to do best. I've got to focus on what I know how to do best, man. Like I've got to, I've got to do. Like I, I've done a lot of startups in my time, and, I, and when I look at them retrospectively, a lot of them actually worked. I just didn't know how to make money from them, in terms of like audience, in terms of like getting attention, in terms of taking off. You know, a lot of the stuff I've done in the past have actually done quite well. I just never made money from them. So, I've learned a lot of that now. I've learned a lot of that monetization ability, and I've also met a lot of people that know how to do it better than me, and I don't have to spend 
you know, 10 years to do something that I could do in two or three. So mm. my aim is basically, you know, go out there and, and start again. And with the energy that I know can exist, with the same vibrance, with, you know, with the right people. I'm really excited. The thought of it really excites me. I'm sort of pacing around the room as I'm talking about it right now. That's, <laughs> that's, that's what gets my blood going, you know, the idea of doing it again, having, having the control, having the, having the ability to make the right decisions in five minutes, mm. not five months. That sounds ridiculous, but that's what I'm stuck with at the moment. <laughs> I can totally understand. Uh, are you planning on going back into the media side of automotive? or do you? Or oh, are you- Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what I know best. That's what people know me best for. And I'm like, like I think you said prior, before we started recording, it's kind of like Top Gear to Grand Tour, except hopefully less shit. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I'm, um, that's so what it is. It's it, it does seem kind of strange, though. You're going to start up another car magazine type business and continue to do the same thing, but just as the owner competing against your previous company. Is that possibly no, what might happen? It's possibly what might happen. It, it's going to have obviously a slant on it. It's not going to be exactly the same. It's, it's going to be new ideas, new new concepts, new abilities, a fresh energy, a fresh approach to things that suit 2019 rather than 2006, which is where sort of those ideas came from. So, you know, taking on board, like car advice, I, I sort of mentioned before, we never really took on board the social aspect of, of content because that, that wasn't our core skill set. Obviously, since 2006 to now, the social aspects changed substantially. So there's a lot of stuff being driven now by social media that we just never really exploited. I'm not saying we're going to go down the path of a social media car business, but there's a lot more that we can do that we just don't do at Car Advice because much in the same way that a company that started life as a print company really struggles to go online. I think an online company that started as its focus in a certain way about SEO and you know, structuring of things like that really struggles. And I felt like our advice has struggled to sort of evolve from where it is today to where it needs to be. And that doesn't mean that he won't do it. I just don't feel like he can do it. But I can help it do it. So I, I just want to, I just want to go out there. I just, I just want to start again. That's, mm-hmm. uh, that's what I do, man. I'm, I, I call myself an entrepreneur, much like yourself. And I feel like I'm, I'll be living a lie if I didn't have some entrepreneurial abilities to go back out there and start my 18th business, which actually it's not true. My 18th business is Watch Advice. That's going really well. Uh, we started that about <laughs> a year ago. It started, did it? <laughs> you were talking about that forever. Yeah, it's up, man, it's up and running. I've, we've got, I've got watches to review. They've, they've sent me stuff now. It's amazing. Like oh. it's, it literally took off. It took off because I suppose a lot of people knew Car Advice and obviously knew I was associated with it. So there was an element of trust from the watch companies immediately because watches and cars go well together. Mm. But... But also, I mean, the formula was simple. It's basically replace the cars with watches. Obviously, it's very different to review a watch to a car, but it's a similar angle and there's no competition in that space, legitimate competition in that space. So the advertising potential is also quite large and it's not going to be nearly as big as car advice, but it's, you know, it's, it's a business that is, again, driven by a friend of mine who's passionate about watches and, and I know he's going to make it a success. So Are you a co-founder? Or? Yeah, I'm, I'm, we're 50-50 on it. So, and what are you um, doing for it? All the business side of it, like in terms of um, you know understanding the, the the technical side, the commercialization side, the ad trafficking side, all, all that stuff, all this, all the things I've learned from Car Advice, I'm sort of bringing onto that. Plus, also the passion and the drive to you know make sure we've got daily content. I'm also investing in it, obviously. Mm. There's a lot there, you know. I, there's, I, I really want to use the skills I've learned for the last 13 years going forward for my own benefit now, because I'm. I'm not a very good employee. If I have shares in a company, I, I feel very different about it. When it's just a paycheck and there's no, there's nothing else, it, it doesn't feel right. I don't have the same energy and um, no. I want to I wanna feel motivated. And, and um, I think for me to be feel motivated is I need to own, I need to own the company or own part of the company. 
Totally understand and agree. Uh, is it watchadvice.com? Did you get that domain? Yeah, it's .com, viscose.au, yes. Okay, yeah. cool. I'll have to check yeah. it out. Yeah. Uh, Abbas, a few more questions and then we're going to be done because this is epic and long. <laughs> so for those, oh, that's who, okay. for those who are still with us, this is great. I'm curious just because I think everyone loves to know about the cars you own. So obviously a car, you're a car aficionado who got a lot of money who can now buy the cars that you used to only be able to have for that review period. So I know you bought the Aston Martin when it wasn't the best time to do so, but then you got a lot of money in your bank account. So you must have been very tempted to suddenly go buy every car you liked. So how did that, you know, I know you have a, you have a Ferrari, you already said. So what, what does your garage look like right now? Yeah. So, I'm, you know, my wife has banned me from buying cars at the moment because we're building a house with a 14 car garage. And, and okay. up in, yeah, so we're building a house with a 14 car garage and I'm, sort of waiting for that to finish because I've got I've got five cars at the moment and they're all in storage and it's kind of it's kind of depressing because uh, where I live at the moment is the same house we've had for uh would have been 6 years and um I've got a carport so <laughs> I've got I've got a single carport garage and uh I I'm not you know it's not somewhere you'd leave a Ferrari in or or, or leave the Aston although the Aston is here at the moment so I, I have been banned from cars, but that hasn't stopped me from buying the five that I've got at the moment. Which are um, so we so we've got we've got the Aston Martin, which is a which is a Vantage N four hundred, which is quite a rare car in in that carousel orange, like I said before. I've got a Ferrari four five eight Speciale, which again is a very very rare car. I'm I'm a driving enthusiast as well as a car enthusiast, so I've, I've sort of went around and bought cars that are not are not only good investments, but also cars that I thoroughly enjoy, and these are sort of the best last pieces of automotive, modern automotive, before the emission regulations changed in sort of 2016 and became really strict and cars, you know, all went turbo and all sort of had to save fuel and stuff like that, which I know is great for the planet, but I love a car that's loud and burns fuel and makes a lot of noise in the process. So then I've got, a, um, I've got an SLS, a Mercedes Goldwing, which, you know, the doors go up. A very classic car. That was my wedding car. I remember Mercedes gave me that car for my wedding to have in the photos. And, and I bought it for my wife on our wedding anniversary, which I thought was quite a romantic thing to do. <laughs> for you. Um, <laughs> which was a great way to buy a car because how can you be angry at me buying a car for your anniversary? <laughs> like, come on, honey, that's ridiculous. I bought this for you. Anyway, I drive it. And uh, <laughs> I, had a, I had a Lotus, which I don't anymore. So I had a Lotus for track, um, which I don't anymore. We have our, we have our Jag. And uh, I've got a few cars in order. I've got a, um, I've got an AMG GTR Black Series that's coming, and uh, I'm actively sourcing a Lamborghini at the moment. It should be only a few weeks away. So, it's uh, look. I did this for the love of cars, and I would feel hypocritical if I didn't at least have some that I love. And uh, and my kids, I've got a almost eight and almost five year old, and they will know more about cars than I reckon most of the people listening to this. They're as car obsessed as I am, even more so, and their love of cars is. And has been through growing up in this family because they've always they've been born into having different cars come through the house every week, and it's quite funny. You know, they I tell the story to people because and they think I'm a terrible parent. But um, <laughs> but we took them to a party recently at the Kindy, where I drove one of them in the Ferrari and my wife drew, drove the other one in the Aston. And on the way back outside the Kindy, in front of all the other parents, they were having a full-on tantrum fight about who gets to go in the Ferrari and who gets to go in the Aston. <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and you know, all the other parents are getting in their Nissans or whatever and going home. And I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. Like, I, I am so embarrassed by what is happening here. But for those kids, it wasn't about money or anything like that. It was just that they love cars. Are you um, sure? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, man. Like, I mean... 
you know, like a few of my friends say to me, oh, you know, you can't have these cars around. Your kids will grow up thinking. Yeah, that's normal. You know, it's, it's normal. And I'm like, well, I grew up with my parents had a Toyota Corona where you had to hold it in reverse. Otherwise, it'd pop out. I still grew up and loved cars and had some motivation. So I've just got to, I guess, instill that sense of motivation and determination in my kids so that they don't rely on them. Um, on whatever they think they're going to rely on. So I don't intend to give them any money. So I, I, I hope they, um, I hope they can make it in life. <laughs> are you going to buy them a car? Like if, if you know, sixteen-year-old son wants a Lamborghini, are you going to say yes? Absolutely not. Does he get um, to use yours? Absolutely not. No, 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 not a chance. My my eight-year-old go kart. So we bought him a go kart, and it's it's not, it's not a cheap process. But he's um he's he loves go he loves racing. He loves go karting. So I, you know, part of me hopes to get into a bit of motorsport and stuff like that, but. Uh, look, uh, for me, as, as my, me as a dad is very different to me as a businessman. I'm like a soft. My, my wife says to me that I'm I'm like a friend rather than a parent because I never discipline. But me and my kids, I'm just a complete pushover. So, but when it comes to stuff like that, I, I kind of go. I, I really hope that I can instill in my kids a sense of entrepreneurship and sort of a determination to go out in life and do what they love rather than anything else. Like that's the best gift I think any parent could ever give their child to go out there and give it a go and not fear failure, or even if they fail, to keep going. My parents were never businessly minded. They, you know, they're, they're both academics. They both have PhDs from university. So smart people, but I think um, book smart, I suppose, would be the way to put it. But you know, I, I was fortunate enough that I sort of fell into this through my love of technology, that I sort of started a business inadvertently, not realizing I'd started a business back when I was 12 and started earning money from advertising back, back I don't know when that was. And that was the first time I ever made money. The check arrived in the mail and I thought, oh, that's weird. I made money from something. I didn't realize you could make money from that. And it just, as I said, I literally fell into it. And uh, it sort of just opened my mind to the concept of I don't have to work for anyone. It also really helped. This is probably, I mentioned this in the first podcast, but it, I, it really helped that I went for a job at a supermarket and they told me I didn't have the personality. I was like, what the fuck does that mean? I, I'm just checking out things from the supermarket. But it, those sort of moments in time, like little forks in the road, really had big impacts on, on me as a, as a young person that I thought, well, if I'm not good enough to work for Woolworths, I'll go and do my own thing. And mm-hmm. I mean, that sounds completely stupid, but whoever didn't hire me was probably the best influence on my life indirectly. We don't even know who they were now mm-hmm. or what they wouldn't even know that impact existed. But little things like that really set me in, um, in different directions. This is how I sort of ended up here. Okay, I was. That's a pretty good note to end the interview on. But I do have one last question. There, there's going to be people listening here, and I think it's fair to say you are the one percent of the one percent in terms of entrepreneurs as well, getting this kind of outcome. And even what you just said kind of hints at there's an aspect of personality that drives this, and there's an aspect I'm sure you'd agree of of luck and timing that drives this as well. You know, like you said, technology emerging, you happen to like automotive, a very financially lucrative industry. But if someone is listening to this and they're going, I want to also be the 1% of 1% entrepreneur, what now, especially in hindsight with all these years that have passed and the exit is completed and you're about to leave that role as well and start another startup. So, you know, you're taking this knowledge in with the next company you're going to start. What do you now know is the most important thing or things to do to try and get that 1% of 1% result from a company? It's a very good question. And I think it, it needs to be thought about a little bit more deeply in a sense that, yes, there is definitely an element of luck. Yes, there's definitely an element of timing 
and emerging technologies. But like I said, car advice was the 17th attempt at a business for me. So whatever terrible luck I'd had in the last 16 or whatever, eventually, you know, the concept of making your own luck, if you try different things or try something long enough and never give up and always persevere, you will feel lucky because one thing will work and people go, oh, that was lucky. It's like, well, no, because the other 16 weren't lucky. You know, they didn't have luck. They didn't have the right sort of combination of timing and all the other factors. But the one thing I will say is if you never give up, if you keep going, you will eventually feel lucky because you will eventually succeed. And success really is always just one single step away from a complete and utter failure. And the people that I've always found and all the people that I know now that have been hugely successful, that are completely self-made, that have, whether I've met through you know, my networks or whatever, all of these people have had enormous amount of failure in life. They have had, they, you never hear about it. Like in all that press that I ever got about the sale of this business, not one person mentioned all the struggle and all the, you know, all the 10 years of my life that went into car advice where I basically had no friends. I never went out partying. I never did anything. Like, you know, I think you've, you've talked about this yourself, Yara. Like I missed 10 years of my life. I didn't do much. I, you know, I didn't travel. I didn't, like, I didn't travel for fun. I, I didn't have, you know, these friends to go out with and partying. I didn't have multiple girlfriends. None of that stuff occurred for me. So there was a lot of sacrifice that went into building this. So luck is all well and good. But ultimately, man, if you, if you want something bad enough, if you want to be successful, if you want to be that 1% of 1%, you just got to go out there and do it. And if you fail, you just got to keep going. You got to do it again. You got to do it again. You got to do it again. Because if you keep doing it enough, eventually you will succeed. It's just, it's just mathematics at the end of the day. If you don't give up, you will eventually succeed. But I think you have to have that emotional and that personal character of being driven enough to be able to be beaten down by failure and get up again and keep going. And I think that's probably been my strongest asset. I'm not the smartest guy out there by all means. I think, I think most of the staff that work at Cardwise would have a higher IQ than me. But the one thing I will say about myself, and not in a boastful way, is that I'm pretty determined and I'm, I'm really stubborn. So I, 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 will not, I will not give up on something really easily. And you can ask my wife, I'm extremely stubborn. <laughs> but if I get it in my head that I'm going to do something, I'll do it and I won't give up. Like it was the same thing with losing weight. Once I set myself a goal, I just lost weight. I, it was no bullshit. It was just like, okay, I'm going to lose this weight now. And I, you know, I lost 20 kilos in nine months and that was good. And I was like, okay, I've reached my goal now, back to something else. I just sort of think about things that way. I'm pretty goal-orientated. But also, it comes from inside, from my personality trait, that I don't like to set a goal and then not give it a go. I don't mind if I fail. I've long ago, long ago, been okay with fear of failure. Like, I was never good at school. You know, I was never good at sort of, you know, like like you, I suppose. I was never the popular kid at school. And so the fear of failure is, I've dealt with that, you know. I'm not one of those kids that was good at sport or all that sort of stuff. So... I'm okay with failing, but I'm also just equally okay with getting up and keep going. Mm. Okay, Alvors, uh, I don't know what websites to shout out for you now. What do we say? What, what do you want to tell people to go to find out more about you? Honest, honestly, if, if you want to sort of have a look, daily look into what I do for life, just follow me on Instagram because I post about 10 stories a day of everything I do. And that's probably the best way. And I, and I also only really respond to people on Facebook and Instagram because I just haven't checked my emails for a couple of years. <laughs> um, so best, best to do is just just my name at Instagram. You, Look you, it up, follow me. Yeah. You know, I have a startup. I think I've told you this before that clears your inbox for you and, you know, has a human being who does that. I know you've talked about I know, this but so the, a, hu- a human being has to read my emails. I okay. guess that's better than no human being reading yeah. my emails. So. <laughs> anyway, we'll, we'll talk about that off air. Alborz, thank you for 
I think you've you've got the record now, the longest podcast I've had on the show. So I really appreciate the the background, the detail, everything that you shared with us. Um, really inspiring and just really interesting. Uh, from you know, obviously as a friend of yours, seeing you go through at least part of that when I lived in Australia, but um, not seeing so much of it too, because there's so much going on behind the scenes with CEOs dying, fundraising, appearing like you're rich but you're really not, and then being exceptionally wealthy. You know, all these ups and downs. So uh, the story is fantastic, and I can't wait to read the book. So I'm looking forward to, to that getting out there too. Yeah, thanks, Yaron. Hopefully, we can do another one in a decade about the next business. So. Definitely, definitely. I'd love to. Uh, hopefully, it'll it'll work out. Love to be investor again too. So you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe get on a bit earlier this time, Yaron. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's have a chat about that right now. We'll go off air. No? <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. Thanks for listening. I've been a person who very early on realized that email is a huge time suck. Like you probably are now, I used to deal with all my email myself. I think most people on the planet still do that. Their email inbox is something they see as their own. They have to deal with it. I learned that that inbox, my email inbox, is the biggest productivity killer time suck. Not to mention it goes completely against my goal for the laptop lifestyle. If I want the freedom to travel, to run my business anywhere, I can't be checking my email four or five, six times a day worrying about, you know, customer complaints or new jobs coming in. And that's what I used to do until about 12 years ago, I hired my first ever inbox manager. And that was a person who became absolutely vital to not just my business, but my life. It significantly reduced my stress because I think like most people, you're, you're probably getting up early in the morning and handling your email then and possibly spending one or two or even three hours. Your entire morning can be wiped out. Just replying to messages doesn't move your life forward. It doesn't move your business forward. It's kind of like busy work. Or maybe you're coming home at night to the big pile of emails and you've got potential customer queries. You've got clients who are asking for things. These are important messages and you end up losing your entire evening when you'd rather be relaxing, spending time with friends or family or even watching Netflix, you know, whatever it is you want to do. But you've got this big pile of email that you know is not going to get smaller unless you go and deal with it. You know, the next day there'll be more emails coming in and the next day there's more emails coming in. So for me, I made sure that once I got rid of it, I never had to deal with it again. So I've had either one or two or even three people handling my inbox specialists for over 12 years now. And I'm very excited to announce as a special sponsor of this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to inboxdone.com, which is a brand new service essentially offering what I'm talking about here, a dedicated email inbox manager that can become part of your team and really take over what is very likely the single biggest stress point time suck productivity killer in your business and your life, no matter what you're doing. So this person can do as much or as little as you like. They can potentially just come in and come up with some systems, some automatic replies, some templates, and they can just be there clearing your inbox, sorting things for you so you don't have to deal with it yourself. And you know, you don't have that scattered feeling when you look at your email or email can be taken off your plate completely. So your dedicated inbox manager will deal with every message that comes into your inbox and also set up some really intelligent systems for doing things that maybe you don't do right now or maybe you, you kind of do. For example, do you have some kind of process for following up with potential customers? So people who show interest in buying your products or services, maybe just email in a question. Do you have a intelligently designed process for chasing them up over a period of weeks with several emails? And you know, are you doing that yourself right now? Well, imagine you've got someone who handles that. It's scheduled. It's part of their job to make sure that goes 
goes out in a strategic way. The same goes for dealing with potential cancellations or refunds. So if you have a membership site now or payment plans, this person could come up with a, a system for strategically handling those kind of queries to, to reduce your cancellation and refund rate. These are just a couple of ways you can actually increase your profits or reduce your losses with a really tailored, dedicated inbox manager. And this is actually, in fact, what we have in my business uh, right now, my information product business with uh, my blog and my podcast and all my teaching products. So if all of this sounds interesting to you, if you'd like to learn more about the service, go to inboxdone.com and you can find an application form there to apply to get your own dedicated inbox manager as well. Just a word of warning though, because of the personalized nature of this service, they can only take on a few clients each month because you do get your own dedicated inbox manager. So that person is specially trained and that takes time. So they have a limit to the number of people they can take on board each month and really it goes to the best applicant. So do a great job applying and obviously if you're a great fit for the service, you will get your own dedicated inbox manager and email could be taken completely out of your life and you'll be able to experience what I've experienced for a long time now, that sense of freedom, relaxation, the the idea that you, you you don't have to stress about this anymore. You don't have to worry about those emails sitting in your inbox. Not only that, you don't have to worry about whether you're doing a good enough job replying to those emails because you could be losing sales right now just because you're not chasing up in an intelligent way. So I encourage you to go check out inboxdone.com. I really recommend their services. Thanks for listening to Yarrow's podcast. For more episodes, visit yarrow.blog and subscribe on iTunes or Google.